Welcome to episode 20 of Chin Music, it's a podcast presented by Fangraphs in sunny DeKalb, Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein, and joining me in the co-host chair this week, we go back to the East Coast, but not to New York. Uh, he was a former editor-in-chief of Deadspin, he's written for Sports Illustrated, The Wall Street Journal, Slate, The New York Sun, he was a co-founder of The Classical, and is currently... Uh, editing at Motherboard, which is Vice's tech vertical, if I can use all the all the good stuff. Uh, and joining me from his luxurious accommodations in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, it's the wonderful Tim Marchman. Tim, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on to uh, ruin your podcast this week. Are you actually doing great? I I, I am because I don't trust been... anyone who tells me they're doing great. No, because it's been like 95 to oh, 115. Or something in Philadelphia over the last few days, and we just had a beautiful rain overnight and into the morning. My echinacea plants are are really thriving <laughs> with it; like it's really nice. Um, there's a cross breeze in the house. I am I am not just saying it; I actually am doing great. Did you have the thing in New York where they asked you to turn your air conditioner off or anything like that? Oh no, uh, we we've been we've been totally cool. We're okay. uh, we're we're less densely populated, so I think uh, the Philadelphia power grid can probably sustain people keeping their fans on. Now, I, were you in Chicago for the '90s heat wave? I wasn't for the '90s heat wave, okay. but it definitely, you know, I lived in Chicago for like twelve right. years or something, and it reverberated every summer. Like every summer, the second it got above. 85 there would be uh you know constant talks and warnings and conversations about like you know hey if one of your neighbors uh seems like they may be dying check on them because they might be dying it was horrifying yeah it was yeah it, it was, i don't mean to make light of that at all I mean, no not actually, at all it was there was a horrible was, i can't remember the years in the 90s and and um yeah my wife was uh going to college in chicago at the time and um you know was there when that happened and you know, so it was to her, it was like, we, we got to take this stuff real seriously. You can't take right. for granted that your, you know, your your neighbors are, are doing okay. They might not be. Right. It got real hot. There were massive brownouts all over. Um, and so no one and, and I want to say a thousand something people died. It was, you know, there were refrigerated trucks outside the morgue and it was absolutely brutal. Uh, it was horrible. Um, anyway, back to fun stuff, even though not all of this is going to be a fun conversation, obviously, with what's going on in baseball, because baseball can't ever be a good thing um we're going to talk about you know what's going on with baseball obviously more sticky stuff um we will get into the trevor bauer thing a bit i won't say more until we get to that uh double barreled special guest this week we are going to talk to harry marino 
who is the executive director of Advocates for Minor Leaguers, uh, and talk a little bit about his organization and the good fight they are fighting and how people can get involved. Uh, and also did a brief interview uh, yesterday. Today's Thursday. So on Wednesday afternoon, I had a brief interview with Kendall Rogers, the managing editor of D1 Baseball. This was done before uh, Game 3 of the College World Series last night. So we didn't really talk about baseball games. Uh, we did. I wanted to talk to him about uh, what happened over the weekend with the North Carolina State uh, ending up you know, being disqualified from the tournament because of their COVID situation. Um, our, and then we'll get into the musical guest, which is Lung, which is really interesting and any band that's just like two people and one's a cello player and the other's a drummer you know it's going to be interesting and so if they're good we'll get into your emails we'll have a moment of culture and all that kind of stuff and then we'll get out of here let's start light and talk about sticky stuff drama um Love it. we've talked about i've talked about this on the podcast you know pretty much every week since it started and then one of my frequent questions was you know, if I set the over under on suspensions for this at 0.5, are you taking the over or the under? And um, if you had a betting slip on that, it's time to cash it in or throw it away because we have a suspension. Yeah, uh, I would have taken the under. Yeah, no, I would have too. And with, with, with Mr. Santiago getting uh, taken out of a game, his glove confiscated, and then everyone learning that this might have been bullshit. So that's, heck, the, that's the amazing thing, right? Yeah, like, he, he says he was just using rosin. Um, he probably was just using and he probably, rosin, unless I believe, you've seen something I, absolute, I Right. I know. I absolutely believe he was just using rosin. And then the thing that turns into this weird story is just that we found out how the enforcement of this rule works where there kind of is no – there's no justice system for this. Yeah, like, there's, um, there's, the, there's, there's nothing here. It's like umpire's decision is completely final except if some guy in the commissioner's office who no one's ever heard of – decides to overrule it like am i wrong here that that, seems that's the only... other part is like you know he's going to fight it but the arbitrator this is someone from mlb yeah it's and, some totally random dude so right. now we have we have we have worked ourselves into a corner where like <laughs> you know there could be a labor action from umpires because i don't even know if this is in accord with uh you know the labor agreement umpires and mlb have this so they just have some random dude out there who may or may not have any authority to overrule anything on the field. And the poor umpires are stuck in the position of having to adjudicate whether what's on some guy's glove is or is not illegal, which I think you actually need to submit to some sort of, you know, scientific analysis to tell. Exactly. Like there's no tangible, immediate, physical difference between really wet rosin and uh, some sort of like rubber cement, some guy was dipping yeah, his hand into. Yeah, or whatever. And 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 the rule is anything in the glove is is bad. And you know, if you use rosin and you grip a baseball and you throw a ball or a strike that doesn't go into play, and the catcher then refer, returns that ball to you, and you catch that ball without I your mean, bare hand, I gotta and use say, your glove. It's going to be in your glove. I kind of love it in a in a heightening contradictions way because my you know my my personal thing here is like you know we've also I'm sure everybody listening to this has seen the data is well aware that as like uh, you know an environmental or you know systemic problem whatever the hell people have been using has has clearly like vastly escalated made a big strikeout yeah. rates it's vastly brought down contact like it's in everybody's interest just in terms of like watching entertaining baseball to make that go away and so you can take that as a given right like yeah you know we we don't want 
people using crazy glue um, so that they can throw 103 mile an hour reverse breaking sliders. Like it's just not in the interest of the game. All right. Granting that, <laughs> like, how do you how do you enforce it? Literally, uh, you know, how do you enforce it? And you get to, you know, I would bet one reason um, that you set the over under on suspension so low is, is the same reason I would, which is that it's really implausible to think of umpires uh, throwing out starters and throwing relievers cold into games, right? Like, there's kind of a bias against wanting to do that um and more than that it's just impossible to enforce there's literally right no way to tell the difference between some high-tech illicit substance and stuff that you know since the 19th century has been put there so that pitchers can grab the ball and so I personally, as bad as I feel for for Santiago, am, am really amused that the suspension is coming off uh, something that just shows the impossible uh, nature of, of enforcement here and, and, and the ridiculousness of the situation. You know, just because you want to make something go away doesn't mean there's any way to to actually do it. Um, right. It's always the danger. Like right? you, 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 the the unintended consequences of this kind of stuff and and the the part of my brain that doesn't trust authority which is sizable says it might not be a mistake that the guy who got suspended was hector santiago you know a guy you know pitching i don't know with the seventh or eighth team kind of toward the end kind of hanging on having a decent year but you know a guy who's that it wasn't a big name oh man you uh you 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 find it a little you find it a little out there that it was that it was Hector Santiago and that you haven't seen right I don't want to go know, just throwing out theory. names here I'm just but saying. you know I, I haven't seen Garrett Cole or Lucas Giolito or you know Jacob Degrom or any any number of uh, other people I could name uh, being tossed out of games and that's not in any way to to uh, to imply that they there would be any reason to, to take them out of a game but uh, I do have my I do have my thinking cap on. And um, I mean, let's get into Giolito then, because we other we had some more fun uh, earlier this week, where uh, Josh Donaldson with the Twins, who uh, is a um, intense human being, chirpy, uh, chirpy, Chesty? chirpy would be chirpy would be the the, the floor. Yeah, I feel like that's to a describe little, Josh. I, I wouldn't put some cards on the table. Um, I'm I'm a I'm a White Sox fan. Yeah, you know, that's like fine. Lucas Lucas Giolito can't do any wrong by me. A thoughtful, <laughs> magnificent human being. Um, and so uh, Donaldson took him yard, crossed the plate, and said, "I don't remember exactly something like that's not sticky anymore, or something like that." Yeah, he was he was he was flapping his hands at the wrists, right? And um, <laughs> and then uh, you know, Lucas in his post gamer said, "Hey, you know, we got the W during last place," <laughs> and and I and then it came out that the the two of them had a uh, a conversation uh, in the parking lot after the game. Yeah, there was there was beef. I knew it was serious when a friend of mine sent me um, Giolito's dad tweeted about this. He's pretty online. Yeah, right. He's a, he's a reply guy, and <laughs> he like he tweeted out something that was like, you know, this is too serious. Like, I have to log off. I won't I won't be speaking on this subject. He was mysterious. He he didn't say exactly what he was talking about, but it was clear that he felt too passionately about uh, the beef between Josh Donaldson. And his son to offer any comment 
And and I mean, can see that happening. Like I know, like behind left field is the players' lot at. I'm just going to call it Comiskey because I forget all my corporate names. Sox um, Park. Side, Sox Park uh, behind left field is a, is a shared players' lot, so it likely you know that, that you can see it happening. And I get and Donaldson said he said something, and Giolito said nothing, and, and acted like Giolito was therefore a wimp for not saying anything. And I, I I've had tough guys in my face, and I've just kind of stared at them and said nothing. I don't think it was a wimpy. I've move. had tough guys in my face in the Sox Park parking lot. <laughs> exactly. Like, there were some guys. There were some guys who. There were some guys who were really upset at my friend Tom and me for taking score during a game, and they were using words I wouldn't like to use on this family-friendly podcast. Wait, what were you doing? We were taking score. We were just, like, sitting in the bleachers, like, you know, like, scoring the game on yeah. our scorecards, and they were heckling us over it. And we ran into them while we were going to my friend's car. <laughs> and they were just, like, they were just, like, letting us know if we wanted to fight. Um, they were up to fight. We were pretty clear. We did like this wasn't anything we wanted to fight over. Um, it all ended peacefully. But yeah, that's a dangerous, it's a dangerous little part of the universe. And then it got even. It's it's, it's sad that we're entertained by this because the whole situation is so goddamn stupid. But then um, you know, for those who don't live in the Chicago area, uh, former White Sox manager Ozzy Guillen, always good for a <laughs> soundbite. Um, like he does post and pre and post game shows on on the white Sox network um on i guess it's comcast chicago i don't even keep track of those yeah, and, he's, and he's got takes oh and that's why he's on like he's gonna go off and he said they should throw at him and josh donaldson responded by looking up his bref page and saying you only have a 700 ops and who are you <laughs> which to talk? which which i frankly think if if josh donaldson uh wants to go there i think he should allow that you know gian really was uh, you know, pretty tremendous. All right, you should talk about his defensive stop. run saved as well. Yeah, talking about balanced. defensive run saved. I think, you know, I'd like to think that the sabermetric community has moved past the point where we just like heckle somebody for their OPS without bringing <laughs> in park adjustment, uh, you know, defensive position, and also, you know, non quantifiable stuff like being the sort of leader of men who can uh, bring a championship to Chicago for the first time in almost. A century. But if Josh and, Donaldson wants to engage in this sort of like primitive circa 1999, uh, you know, OPS looking at good for good for him. Good for him. And he also brought up Guillen's uh, like one statement Guillen had where he supported Fidel Castro. I'm not sure what that has to do with Guillen's. Uh, I'm not sure what that this, has to do with subject. anything, although it's something I've thought a lot about over the years. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm I'm not so deep into my performative uh, Donaldson bashing that I'm not going to admit I, I side with him and wondering what exactly that's about. But um, you know, should um, should Ozzy Guillen be advocating for Josh Donaldson to be murdered with a fastball over right? That's the thing. Over his weird WWE style dancing at home plate after having taken Lucas Giolito deep. Probably not. Is all of this wonderful and fantastic? Yes, that's that's my that's my two cents. And, I, and I've always thought the NBA kind of benefited from player on player beefs, and I feel like we don't have a ton of them in baseball. And maybe this will be the beginning of something. Yeah, like I love um, I love player on player beef and like low grade uh, conflict. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think. 
I think this is excellent. I don't really think anyone did anything wrong, um, except possibly Ozzy <laughs> Right, who's, who's not a player anymore. Um, who's doing his job. But uh, I am I am completely all for it. I also love that Donaldson is beefing uh, and being chesty on behalf of the Twins, who are just like a catastrophe and should yeah, by <laughs> all rights be in first place and are the worst the worst team in in arguably baseball's least impressive division for no really obvious or defensible reason. And he is still going out and, and, and just trying to have fights with a you know a successful team that is obviously destined to win the World Series this year. My only worry, oh, it's not my only worry, but one of my, my <laughs> biggest worry about this kind of story, and I, I've danced around this about is just like I, I think again, I don't think the conspiracy part of my brain doesn't think this is a conspiracy, but I think Major League Baseball is very happy about it to see kind of players chirping at each other going into a CBA as, oh. opposed, to, as opposed to being like a unified force. Oh, totally. Like in, you know, in in my day job for, for many years, on and off, I've, I've covered labor conflicts and I don't want to get too conspiratorial about it myself, but I think um, certainly systemically, you know, management is always happy if labor is doing anything that isn't barking at or beefing with management, right? Like, it's the, right. It's the nature of systemic incentives. <laughs> um, another big story, just because it's that time of year on the calendar and they had all the big announcements riot, riding around it, was All-Star Game voting. They're doing it a little different this year and they have the votes, then they have the finalists and then asking people to vote more. Um, and then you also have as other plans for the All-Star Weekend, players saying they will and will not participate in the Home Run Derby and all that stuff. And people get really excited about Do you care about I, I I honestly see the All-Star break as a break from baseball. I don't watch the Home Run Derby. I don't watch the All-Star game. I don't man, I, I don't, have very little interest in any of that. Do you am I am I like the heartless soulless person here or am I crazy? I don't know. Maybe those are your become, two options. I'm heartless, yeah, maybe soulless, we or I'm crazy. Heartless, soulless, uh, cranky, tired old men who are just yelling <laughs> about how how stuff was cool, um, you know, when when we were younger. But I haven't really, I haven't really given a shit about the All Star Game since interleague play. Yeah, was introduced. Like I had residual caring about the All Star Game for um, years after interleague. Play was introduced, but ultimately, to me, the appeal of the All Star Game was always getting to see people play against each other who otherwise never would have. And um, when that became, you know, a, a, an annual event, that diminished the appeal of the All Star Game to me. And then certainly, once interleague play went from being, you know, a couple of series every summer to you know just routine third week of april stuff right it, it you know it just it just killed any any real appeal to me i yeah you know i don't know i i wish i cared about the all-star game more um but i just yeah i don't know it's a bunch of you know it's a bunch of players playing who you can see any time on tv like in game another count yeah, another real appeal of the All-Star Game used to be in olden times that I'm sure many people listening to this will not remember, but it used to be you only used to be able to see your old, your local team on TV. 
Um, and so you'd wonder, you you know, like, what, you know, what is Tony Gwynn getting up to or whatever mm-hmm. like that when you can just watch him on your phone while you're waiting at the bus stop. Um, it diminishes a little of that appeal. And I'm sure there are all sorts of proposals people have to restore a little bit of the excitement to the All-Star game. But I don't think it's like crazy to be like with all the fundamentally appealing things about the All-Star game that make these people playing baseball against each other special. I don't find it all that special or entertaining. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's an out there. Well, I, yeah, let's let's move on then. Neither of us care. That's the answer. Um, now, you are uh, the features editor for Motherboard, which is mm-hmm. Vice's technology thing. And so this one's in your wheelhouse. You get ready to explain things to people. Uh, which if this was, is what I think it is, I, I, I have to tell you I'm not going to be able to. But. Excellent. <laughs> um, so baseball enters the world of NFTs and got a press release in my mailbox. Uh, Major League Baseball and Candy Digital, a next-generation digital collectible company, unveiled on Wednesday their first officially licensed NFT, a one-of-one piece of history that commemorates Lou Gehrig's luckiest man speech. Now, NFTs have been a thing for a while. Um, I know there's been some art stuff. I know basketball got involved as well. And NFTs, um, without me totally understanding what they are, uh, came off to me to, to really combine two of my favorite things with being both incredibly stupid and also <laughs> behind the scenes kind of evil. Um, mm-hmm. So can you explain what an NFT is? So an NFT is a... Non-fungible token. Uh, Fun to which, say fungible. <laughs> which essentially means that it is a uh, it is on the blockchain, which is something that in 15, 10, 15 years, I don't know how long, uh, of asking people what that means, I haven't been able to get an entirely straight answer for. But essentially it means this is a... Uh, bit of digital content that due to the way it is produced cannot be reproduced or replicated or forged. It is one of a kind, which sounds attractive, but what it amounts to is you have, uh, you know, uh, one of a kind, unable to be forged or replicated copy of an image of... uh, A digital copy. Yeah, digital copy of you know, a shock meme from the early aughts internet. (laughs) Like, you now own Lemon Party in NFT format. And you can prove that. You know, it it has kind of built-in provenance, the way way, uh, an assiduously tracked, you know, Renaissance masterpiece will, and one that is uh, provable, cannot be forged. Like, you have the only copy of this image, but ultimately what you have is uh, a lemon party image. That <laughs> you have a file only you can open, right? That, that well, not only, you know, any, you know, only you own. Like it looks exactly like the one anyone else might be able to Google. Right. I you can have go the on only to, I can one go on, that is exactly this. I can go on to YouTube and get a video of the Lou Gehrig luckiest man speech. But mm-hmm. this will be the only one of these. This will be the only uh, copy of the Lou Gehrig speech that 
is like this. Like this copy cannot be copied, basically. <laughs> so I assume without making any accusations about anyone in particular who is who is uh, making NFTs and using blockchain technology to make these uh, unable to be duplicated copies of things that this is all money laundering. It kind of reminds me of stuff that you see on Amazon where there will be gibberish books on Amazon that sell for like $900,000. Right. And you're like, why does that exist? Like this, this seems to be, you know, the product of robots talking to each other or some sort of glitch in the mainframe or, or whatever. And it's actually like, you can launder money uh, from your criminal enterprises by putting, uh, buying you know, a $900,000 book. Yeah. A one of a kind, uh, copy of a gibberish book on Amazon, putting it up for $900,000, someone will buy it. You've, you've washed your money. That conceptually seems to me to be how NFTs work. Um, how all of this works in relation to major league baseball, which I can't imagine is doing any, any kind of actual money laundering is just doing this because, you know, people see money being splashed around and, and see it as an opportunity to make money. I have no idea, but I presume somebody will buy it and get rich selling it to somebody else. Like you to, know, to all... somebody who's made a tremendous amount of money uh, on the prescription drug market. Yeah, you know, all money is hallucinated, and you know, a, a consensual, <laughs> mutually con- consensual agreement to uh, say that something that doesn't make any sense makes sense. So, yeah, you know, I, I think. Uh, you know, if, if if MLB is doing that, then uh, good for them for experimenting with what the young, hip youths are doing on the internet, I guess. And there's also, like, plenty of stories <laughs> about how NFTs are, it's it's blockchain technology, and therefore is absolutely horrible for our environment. You know, we're, like, the, the, the energy resources going into the blockchain world. Yeah, it's, it's sucking us dry. Yeah, it's, it's, it's legitimately horrible because... Uh, the way the way the encryption technologies work basically is is you need to have computers on just running programs and and you link the computers up to each other they run the programs the people who are you know really good at this and really making a lot of money on it are hooking a lot of computers up to each other and doing that and to vastly oversimplify it's like you know the power output of of a small city mm-hmm. when you when you're doing this in any meaningful way. So, yeah, it's it's you know it's not totally good or anything that should be really encouraged. Uh, whether it comes to uh, its environmental impacts, its uh, you know utility as an investment vehicle or something you should do with your retirement funds or anything like that. You know, but, uh, you know, if if you are out there and you want to buy a uh, totally unique copy of the retirement speech that is exactly like ones that are not unique, um, maybe you're just going to get some personal and aesthetic satisfaction out of that. And, you know, I get personal aesthetic satisfaction out of my not in the scheme of things, all that impressive echinacea plants. So, you know, who am I to judge? <laughs> Um, we've talked about silly stuff. Uh, it's time to talk about something serious. Um, 
we're going to talk about Trevor Bauer now. We're not uh, getting into details of, of the accusation, uh, but mm-hmm. nonetheless, I know this is a, uh, uh, an upsetting subject. This will be the last thing we talk about in this segment. If you don't want to hear about this subject, it's something that uh, is not good for your mental health. Just fast forward until you hear music playing, and then you will know we are done. Um, so... Uh, it came out obviously this week though the accusations against trevor bauer um highly credible accusations of uh highly disturbing assault um it is thursday afternoon it is 2 10 p.m central time um the dodgers have a game tonight in washington that starts at 6 p.m central time um they're likely arriving at the park about now um it's 6 p.m. Central Time, so the home team will take batting practice, take the field somewhere around 3.30 or so. Um, and during that 3 o'clock hour is the first media availability for the Dodgers. Um, the Dodgers have made no statement about the situation other than the fact that they are aware of the the, the, the accusation and the legal proceedings around it. Um, and that it's being investigated uh, by the, the officials in California. Um, but they're going to have to face the media in somewhere in the next hour or two. Um, as of this time, I personally, um, and I have talked to other people in the industry, um, executives with our teams who are quite surprised, uh, that as we sit here, Trevor Bauer has not been placed on some kind of administrative leave. Um, I'm going to be incredibly speculative here. Um, but knowing what we know about Trevor Bauer's personality, I think it's quite possible that if they even tried to, he would fight it tooth and nail. Um, but it's, it's, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I wasn't, you know, Tim and I talked before about even if we wanted to address the situation and like, I don't want to talk about the case itself. Like it's, 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 I think it's a good advice not to always have a take. I think it's horrifying. Um, I think the, you know, what everything I've read, it's, it's, it's a highly credible thing. Um, I believe the victim, but like to have a take is just to, I, I like, Hey, I think he's horrible too, but you wanted to talk about kind of, um, some of the mechanics around in the sense that you have, you've, you've covered stories kind of like this a lot and wanted to talk about kind of what, what and how the team and the league can react to this. And so I kind of wanted to stick to that as opposed to, um, yeah, us, us, us just continuing to sit here horrified at what Trevor Bauer did. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's, uh, any reason for us to, to weigh in too much about the details of the case, which are there for, for people who, who want to read them. Uh, a woman has said that Bauer behaved in a certain way. Uh, she's done so in a very credible way. Yep. Um, and that's going to work its its way through the legal process. There, there may be, uh, you know, criminal charges or a civil complaint. Neither are there right now. What we know is that she's, uh, you know, filed for a protective order. Um, I think the main thing this pointed up to me and the, and the reason I wanted to, to bring it up here and also get your thoughts about it, you know, as someone who's, you know, worked from the inside and, and, and seen how, how teams and, and knows how people around the industry react to these things is in um, editing coverage of this, you know, working with journalists who are really strong on you know, stories about uh, sexual violence. One thing that has 
over the years um, become increasingly convincing to me <laughs> from that reporting and from talking to experts and advocates is that private companies, this isn't you know just about Major League Baseball or just about sports leagues, it's about the whole universe of private companies, them getting involved in cases is not necessarily helpful, right? Like the best way for things to play out is if there is an accusation against an individual, um, they need to be empowered to handle that however they want. One problem, for instance, with a zero tolerance approach to issues of intimate partner violence or sexual violence in sports is that a lot of times the victims are um, personally tied to or financially reliant on the people they're accusing. Mm -hmm. And so say someone goes to a baseball team and they say, hey, my partner has been abusing me. Um, I need support. I need help. I want this to stop. I don't know who to turn to. I'm relying on this person, right? Like, I, I want, I want this. I want help in this situation. If you propose a, a zero tolerance policy, one where anyone, you know, accused um, of of certain behaviors is sort of presumed presumed guilty or treated in a certain way, say taken off the active list, uh, put on suspension, right? That can actually be a discouragement to reporting or to people uh, coming forward and saying they want support. It doesn't they, feel like it would in this case, though, does it? It doesn't feel like it would in this... It doesn't feel like it would in this case because this is not a case where the person there's, coming there's forward... There's a dependency. Right. Like, there's, there's no dependency here. But... That is the usual case. And so when you're talking about the construction of a, a, you know, an industry-wide policy, which is necessarily going to be a really blunt instrument, it's something you really have to think about. Um, what is, you know, what is going to cause, cause the least harm? Um, what is going to allow, uh, you know, and encourage victims to come forward and, and get the support they need? Um, Someone being, someone being put, you know, on an inactive list the second a credible accusation comes up can potentially be an impediment to that. It could, you know, in theory, it could be um, an incentive to say, let's keep this, let's keep this off the books, let's settle this privately, let's not take this through the criminal justice system, which mm -hmm. in some cases might not be what's uh, you know what's what's good for the victim. They might want to do that, but they might not want to initiate that, knowing that it will become a huge, you know, public spectacle with the person being taken off if they initiate any right. kind of complaint that reaches um, the ears of their employers. But like that's all kind of a roundabout way of saying as unsatisfying as it can be. There's a really good argument to be made that teams and leagues and businesses generally sh should just stay out of this entirely. The main reason they would put someone on, uh, you know, in an active list or suspend them or anything like that if an accusation is made, you know, whether criminally or civilly or just in the media 
is to, you know, is a fundamentally public relations oriented one, one that's very defensive, one that is um, oriented around the team not being able to to be accused of being insensitive to the league, being accused of that. I think we've seen this particularly in the NFL, which is set up like a whole kind of shadow criminal justice and judiciary system in, in ways that are that are really strange um, and not particularly useful or helpful. But it's like the fundamental point here might be that if, you know, if, if the Dodgers don't want Bauer on their team, ethically or morally, or because they feel it's bad to their bottom line to have somebody who's, who's bringing them bad publicity, they, you know, they have the option of buying out his contract. Um, if they want to do something useful past that uh, to address the issue, there's not a lot they can do because they're a baseball team. They're not, you know, they're not criminal investigators. They're not, um, you know, they're not judges. But to, to be clear, you're not saying that the Dodgers should have him suiting up and pitching on Sunday. Mm. Or are you? I think, I think in the, certainly in the absence of criminal charges, I think that's probably the thing they should do. And that's a very frustrating position to have. But the, you know, if you don't take that position, the one you're going to is that the Dodgers should be basically performing their own off the books um, investigation of allegations of serious crimes. And it's not one I think they're capable of. They, they don't have any real authority to do. Like, you know, I'm, I'm open to that. I'm open to that being wrong. Um, but it's a bit yeah. I think people should 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 take very seriously. Um, and, and I understand what you're saying. It just feels like that would be a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. But maybe you're. I guess what you're saying is, in the long run, that might not be. If you, if you really care about him paying the proper price for this, it might be something you just have to live with. Right. I think the. I think the argument here, and to be to be clear, I'm kind of paraphrasing. A lot of arguments that are made by, you know, people who support victims and try to look at how advocacy for them can work in, you know, specific business contexts is it is a horrible thing to have somebody uh, accused of a crime, you know, being able to just go about their life. But in, in a lot of cases, that's the least bad option. Because otherwise what you're doing is um, removing something from the specific public legal context within which it exists and, you know, which is ultimately the governing authority for it and removing it to much less clearly defined spheres of authority Mm -hmm. um, that don't have any ability to adjudicate to you know discover guilt or innocence and that gets really you know that gets really messy really fast it can work you know it can work in the service of justice in theory but that assumes a lot of good faith uh on the on the part of the the private organization that's doing it earlier we were we were talking in a much less serious light about how we both kind of natively distrust 
you know, distrust authority and, you know, the belief that a given um, team or sports league or business of any sort that has a, a, a financial interest in, you know, its relationship to someone who's been accused of a crime can be um, expected to step outside that and do things that will serve victims of sexual violence as opposed to its own corporate interests is, is real dodgy to me. And so if that ends up with them displacing themselves from the situation entirely, and leaving it to the proper authorities, that's not, it's probably not bad in the long run. It's a messy, how does, how sticky does, situation, right? How does, how does leaving him on the team potentially impede the justice process? I wouldn't say it's so much about leaving him on the team. It's about saying it's, it's almost a little bit easy if you can say someone having been accused of something, we are now going to take him off the team and let the process run its course, right? Right. Um, with the process, in this case, being some kind of parallel private investigation. But I'm saying don't even do that. Like, don't even do that. Like, don't like I, I agree with you. The Dodgers are not equipped to investigate this. Um but like, just say, "Hey, we're going to take take him off this team, and not get involved in any sort of investigation." But we're going to take him off this team while this is happening and being conducted by the people who should be conducting it. Like, what's what's the what's the negative there? Well, the negative there is it's potential disincentive to report in a lot of cases, not all, mm-hmm. but a lot. And another one is it's a labor issue, right? If a if a if a, if a player is being taken off the team, are they being paid? Uh, on an administrative leave, yes. Yeah. So you have a situation where someone... I'm going to make this work for you. This is my goal here. I'm going to make this work for you. So we're taking him off the team and we're paying him. What's the what's the problem? If he's in being... This, in, in this specific case. In this specific case, uh, when does he come back? What is like? What is the threshold where he has been cleared? found innocent in a court of law and or charges dropped which will take how long certainly the rest of the year right i mean i think you and i both know how slow the justice system can work yeah which means realistically that's not gonna that's not gonna happen like there's there's not gonna be a process that's set up like that that says somebody is gonna be um kind of put on administrative leave until their cases has worked through the justice system because you're you're talking about um like I mean, honestly, like the, I, and again, like I think you and I both have either been in cases or know of mm-hmm. cases. Um, like if he got charged tomorrow, like mm-hmm. I don't, I, the trial wouldn't happen until after spring training next year, at the earliest. Right. That would be, and that would be a quick move. Mm-hmm. I just don't think this guy should be playing. And and I mean, I don't know. Is that just too emotional? I don't think it's too emotional, and I don't think anybody who says I don't want to see this guy on a ball field while this is out there is wrong. Um, I think one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up and just discuss it is No, I think it's interesting. It's yeah. it's you know, it's it's messy and it's messy beyond the obvious complications of um, And know, again what you were saying is people is, making accusations and saying this happened and, you know, somebody's been accused uh, coming back at it. It's like is like the basic question here is 
on a fun, you know, on a fundamental level, what is the role of, uh, you know, what is what is the role of the team and the league in in, in legal disputes? And right. the reason they are even brought in here as um, even being potentially in a role to take someone off the field is because of the charge nature of these particular, you know, these particular claims, the same way they would be in a murder case, you know, a, a serious case of arson where a player was right. accused of, of setting someone's house on fire. But there are all sorts of legal disputes where we accept as a matter of course that there's just no place for the team, uh, you know, or the, or the league to have any real say. All sorts of uh, disputes over money to everything like, you know, really, really serious accusations like drunk driving where, you know, employers and, and the league generally back off and wave their hands a little bit and say, you know, it's not our place. We'll, we'll, we'll let the courts decide. The, um, I think the, the resolution here is in a perverse way almost to leave it to the market. If the team finds – teams can't have it both ways. I, I think is the ultimate, uh, you know, the ultimate resolution you find here. If if they find that an association with somebody who's been accused of something is, um, you know, so so upsetting to them that they want to completely distance themselves from it, there are easy ways to to sever themselves from players while uh, maintaining their their contractual commitments and honoring them. Um, and the, 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 one of the, one of the most, you know, kind of upsetting things in a, in a sports particular context about the way employers, um, can use these allegations to manipulate their contracts with athletes is to say, it almost becomes like having an option on it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, we'll make you go away for a little bit if everything's cool. We'll bring you back. Um, if everything's bad, we'll we'll just cut bait with you. It it removes all onus and responsibility and everything from from the team, allowing them to enjoy upside while being able to distance themselves from downside. And and, and that's part of where it becomes a PR play, and it becomes about you know how much money they're on the hook for how much they can count on this guy to perform in an athletic context and not about, um, you know, just, just stepping back and saying like, all that's pretty unimportant relative to the central claims that are being made here in the, in the, you know, workings of the legal process. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, I want to re, I, I still not, I still don't think I agree with you, but I do want to like reiterate that a lot of what you're saying is being paraphrased by victim advocates groups. Who are saying that this is how things need to be done? That this is actually it's it's shitty, but it's actually the best for the victim. At often at times, um, so I'm going to put you on the spot here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if the Dodgers called you last night and said, "What should we do?" What would your advice be? Mm. Nothing. Just ride it. Yeah, I would say you know you're you're probable. Your options here are if you find these, um, if you find these allegations really credible, and you find that you don't want to be associated with Trevor Bauer, uh, due to how credible 
you find them. Like one good option would be to just buy his contract out and release him. Um, you can do that. And you know, you can, that's one way you can demonstrate um, your belief in the seriousness of the accusations and the depth of your commitment to distance him from the from the Los Angeles Dodgers. If you don't want to do that, um, just let things play out and and say you know that there is you know there's there's obviously been uh, you know a set of claims made and those are going to be taken really seriously and in the meantime the employee will continue to carry out the job they're being paid for and you know there's not too much more a baseball team uh can do than that that's also gross isn't it it's it's gross but the like everything 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 that can be done in this context is gross right there's nothing that's there's nothing that's not gross and that's the horrifying thing about um you know disturbing claims of criminal conduct there's not an easy you know there aren't there aren't easy solutions mm-hmm. and i think that's um at the root of some of the problems that you've seen with sports leagues trying to address this as they're trying to find an easy solution one that doesn't you know make anyone feel gross and that's not necessarily the best place to go to is is making no one who works for a team or watches a team or works for a league or you know supports a league feel bad the best place to start from is probably um centering you know centering victims centering people who make claims and make allegations and figuring what is going to be the thing that will most support them most encourage people who are in those positions to come forward and least interfere with uh, the legal processes that need to happen to obtain them justice. And there's not in any way going to be a good or satisfying or easy answer to any of that, but anything that is primarily oriented around, you know, making... Uh, a team or a league look good is probably going to be the wrong strain of response because that's that's the wrong priority right um it's thursday afternoon it's now 2 30 um i have been told that there are heavy rains forecasted for washington dc um and you might not uh so that they might not go to the park um and they might have another day to kind of figure out what how they're going to respond to this um, I mean, knowing what you know about the situation, knowing what you know about how corporations have behaved in these situations, do you think he pitches on Sunday? Um, my bet would be yes. What do you think? I feel like I've been talking a lot my, here. And my you're someone would, who has a lot more firsthand experience. My bet would be no. Um, my bet would be no. Um, I just don't think they can allow it, um, even if it is. And I again, I, I you know. I think we disagree. I personally think it's the right thing to do. I don't think he should be allowed on a thing. I actually like your solution of 
you should just clean your hands and, and buy out the contract. And, you know, it is something that, um, especially if you might, the Dodgers can afford to do. Um, and I, I think that would probably be the best way to go is to just buy out the contract and say, we're done with this. Um, because, you know, the accusations are credible, highly credible. Um, I think we knew before this that Trevor Bauer was a shithead. We just didn't know at the level of it. Um, and I think you just kind of, you kind of just remove yourself from it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, I think if you're, if you're going by like the, uh, you know, a Kantian view of the universe, that's probably the thing to do. Is it realistic? I don't know. And that goes back to that point about like, what is, what is the aim here? Is it to right. Make the, is it to make the not even to make the team look good, but to make the team seem not bad, or is it to right? And I, it, it's there's things I wonder that I that that I that we might never know. Um, but like you, I wonder what other players are saying to Dave Roberts and or Andrew Friedman. Um, and if other players are saying you got to get this guy out of here, we're not doing this. Um, and I'm, you know, and but I'm sure there are also players saying, "Let him pitch Sunday. We want to win." Um, you know, I, I think that I, I do wonder kind of what the conversations are in that clubhouse. Um, I have a decent idea what they are in the front office, but I kind of wonder what what this, they are in the clubhouse as well. There's, you know, there's a ton of questions, and so to kind of. Kind of bring this back around um if if you were you know if the Dodgers had called me last night and said hey what do you you know what do you what do you think we should do here um really the answer would probably be hey maybe we reach out uh to the victim here uh through her through attorney and say hey we're we're thinking about this we don't want to put you on the spot or uh mm-hmm. you know put you in an uncomfortable position we're going to reach out to your representative and say, you know, we're kind of curious, like, you know, what do you, you know, what do you think we should do? What would, Mm -hmm. what would feel, what would feel right by you? Uh, you you know, you don't have to (laughs) weigh in, um, right? but what do you think? Uh, when you, you know, when you, when you talk to a lot of advocates, um, you know, it, it can be a bit of a catchphrase, but one thing people, really do bring up a lot is the idea of restorative justice, you know, not, mm-hmm. not punitive uh, approaches, but things that mediate between an aggressor and a victim that, uh, you know, create some sort of parity, allow for communication, allow for remediation of wrongs. Um, I think the right, you know, Probably ultimately the right thing to do for anybody in a front office uh, who is looking at a player, whether you know the, the highest played paid, highest paid player in the majors, or someone who is a, a, a lot further down the depth chart, when confronted with a situation like this, is to ultimately think about you know a what is what is going to be right by the person who's been harmed here. Um, right, that should whether, always be the priority. Yeah, whether whether or not that's going to you know look into the outside world, and then what can be done to, um, you know, 
make make people whole and and allow allow them to to, to move on from the situation whatever uh, whatever that is comfortable right. or uncomfortable as defined by or, them yeah looking looking good or not um, and then of course at some point there you have to think about how this is going to look um, to the rest of the world but remembering that every one of these situations is one that involves um, you know real people whose you know lives and, and mental and emotional well-being may well be determined for a long time going forward by how you handle it um, mm-hmm. put that right there and everything else should hopefully work itself out um okay we'll we'll end it on that um i it's, it's again like it's tim and i had a conversation before we started like do we even want to talk about this it's not i know it's not a fun thing to discuss but it's it's i don't know i just didn't want to ignore it like this yeah you know, it just tries to be a fun show but like i didn't want to just i don't know gloss over and act like it's not happening i just feel like we kind of have to talk about it um not, i don't know i have no other point beyond that nor a question um We'll take a break. You'll listen to some great music from Lung. We'll come back, talk to Harry Marino from Advocates for the Minor Leagues. We'll talk to Kendall Rogers from D1 Baseball about the NC State COVID situation from last weekend. And then we'll get to your emails, catch up with Tim, Moment of Culture, all that good stuff. Stick around. was a, a huge star division three williams college in lovely massachusetts where he had a 3.43 era his final year 
He played two seasons in the minors in the Arizona and Baltimore systems, compiling an impressive 2.14 ERA. And then he decided to give it all of him and become a lawyer. Uh, went to law school, uh, clerked for some big judges, and then recently this year became the executive director of Advocates for the Minor Leagues. And joining us is the wonderful Harry Marino. Harry, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great, Kevin. Thanks for uh, thanks for that lovely intro and for having me on. Uh, can you talk about your how you ended up go, becoming the executive director of this organization before we get into what the organization does? You know, obviously you played baseball for a little bit. Um, you were an undrafted free agent and, and you know played a couple seasons in, in the low minors. Um, then went to law school and decided to become a lawyer, and you ended up moving kind of from a law world to doing this. How'd that happen? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, as you said, I, I came out of D3 Williams College and played uh, in the Orioles and Diamondbacks systems for, for a few years. And really, at that point, was immediately struck by this issue of you know the mistreatment of minor leaguers, uh, kind of day in and day out. And actually, when I uh, applied to law school, which I did while I was still playing, um, I wrote in my law school admissions essay about about the mistreatment of minor leaguers and about you know the different things one could do with a law degree, including advocating for minor leaguers, uh, and and especially I, I remember talking about the treatment of of Latin ball players in the minor leagues. Um, so yeah, then I went to law school, kind of went down that path, was doing more sort of Supreme Court and appellate advocacy, um, kind of moved away from from sports a little bit. Um, in terms of where I was going with my career. And then, you know, I, I ended up seeing this uh, organization pop up, I guess it was March of 2020, and reached out to Garrett Brochaus, one of the co-founders, and started a dialogue. And, and things kind of grew from there. And so uh, earlier this year, when the organization was able to, you know, to get some funding to bring on full-time staff, and the board you know, asked me to, you know, would I be interested in being the executive director? Uh, it was kind of, it was kind of a no brainer for me. I mean, it was just, it was truly, you know, in, in, in a literal sense, one of the reasons I went to law school. So uh, I really jumped at it uh, and am feeling very fortunate to be in the position. So let's talk about the organization itself. You know, the, the, the platform statement is, you know, providing a voice for minor league players and improving working conditions. Um, this seems like most of the issues revolve around uh, pay and also kind of and, and housing and, and the situation that players have to be in when they are sent to various affiliates. Uh, is that accurate? Yeah. So I think the way that we see the organization is as, you know, filling a gap that exists because there is no minor league union. Right. So minor league players don't have have a voice uh, officially. Obviously, they're not represented by the MLBPA. And so they don't have a seat at the table and they really just have to take whatever the teams give them. Um, and so, you know, that's what struck me as a problem. That's what, what strikes, you know, other members of our organization as a problem. And, you know, because they don't have a voice and because they don't have a seat at the table and because of baseball's antitrust exemption, which allows teams to uh, collude on the standard minor league uniform player contract and agree to depress, you know, artificially depress minor league salaries, um, you know, minor leaguers really need that voice. So that's kind of where we start is just, you know, to provide that voice and to speak up on their behalf. Now, you know, in terms of the substantive issues, 
I think low pay is at the core of it because a lot of the things that happen in the minor leagues are, are modeled on the major leagues, right? Like major league players only get paid, you know, seasonally. They don't receive paychecks all year round and, and so on and so forth. The difference is major league players make, you know, $600,000 plus a year. Minor leaguers are making, you know, less than $15,000 a year. And so some of those mechanisms that are in place at the major league level are just not practical or sustainable at the minor league level. So yeah, that's where housing, meals, um, those kind of issues come in for sure is, um, you know, is, is because minor leaguers get paid so little that they can't, they can't really uh, afford to, to do those things themselves. So yeah, pay is, is at the core of everything that we're doing, but certainly there are other issues and housing is a big one that players have talked to us about um, day in and day out this year. And that's why that's been a rather large piece of what we've talked about here kind of in the first half of the minor league season. Um, I, let's talk about the pay for a second. Um, I mean, like you said, $15,000 a year and, and some not even making that. And it is just the seasonal pay. Um, it, it, you know, I, I think it feels like exploitation in a lot of ways. It's just something they can do because they get away with, um, you said the teams have colluded to do this and they don't have, you know, they have the antitrust exemption. Have, have any teams tried to pay them more as a competitive advantage, if you will? Like, you know, say, look, if we treat our players better, it's going to be good for the organization or are they held down by the, the rules of major league baseball? So I do think that there have been small ways in which teams have tried to pay a little bit more here and there. Uh, I mean, we're talking on the order of, you know, $25 a week, something like that, or mm. providing, you know, slightly better benefits in terms of meal money and stuff like that. But we haven't seen a team sort of depart from the fundamental model of this is the standard, uh, this is the standard salary and this is what we're going to, to pay you. Like, we haven't seen anybody say, hey, we're going to pay you something approaching your, you know, fair market value, right? And we're going to, we're going to depart from this sort of lockstep incremental jump uh, from level to level all at a very low uh, weekly salary. We haven't seen any team depart from that. So, um, you know, I think that speaks to sort of how cohesive the teams have been with respect to, you know, uh, colluding on these salaries and, and keeping the the salaries low. I don't think anyone wants it uh, on the team side wants a truly competitive market for minor league players. Um, and that's that's a huge problem. So uh, other than speaking up about this, kind of what, what can be done to, to fix this, I, I do wonder if the market will, will help in the sense that with a shortened draft and more non-drafted free agents like yourself, um, teams could have an advantage bringing in players if they say, hey, we provide housing like the Astros to start to do this year or we provide a better pay scale. Do you think that there are any solutions on that or do we need something more, more fundamental to force teams to do it because they're not going to do it themselves? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things there. I mean, in the short run, right in the next you know month or so, sure. I think that um, I think that players who are not drafted can make a decision about where to go based upon marginal differences in treatment. And you know, like you said, the Astros providing housing—that's a pretty good reason to go to the Astros. You know, the Dodgers have um, better meals that, by all accounts, than most other teams, and have a chef that um, that accompanies them. You know. Uh, to their games that, you know, that's a pretty good reason, you know, to go with them. We, we focused on the differences between the Mets and the Phillies over the weekend when they were playing a series. And you could see up and down the system that the Phillies um, treated their minor leaguers marginally better 
than the Mets. Um, you know, to be clear, none of these teams are doing what they should be doing. But yeah, I think that that uh, is is a fair reason for for undrafted free agents or minor league free agents who have lived out their you know their contract to to kind of go to one team or another. Um, now, in the larger uh, scheme of things, there needs to be structural change, right? And I think that can come in a few forms. I mean, you certainly could see Congress or the Supreme Court intervene and chip away at Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption, which from a legal perspective um, really has no basis. And I think we saw the Supreme Court hint at uh, some skepticism about baseball's antitrust exemption uh, in the NCAA case that came out just recently. So, you know, that's one, one sort of thing that could really drastically change things on the minor league side. Obviously, you know, another thing is players getting together and deciding to unionize, which there's no legal barrier to them doing at this point. The barrier uh, is practical and is their fear of retaliation uh, if they were to speak out about that, which is, uh, as anyone who's spent some time in a, in a minor league clubhouse knows, is very real. I mean, guys, guys are very afraid that if they speak up in any way, they will uh, incur the wrath of their team and they'll be cut. And nobody will be able to say whether it was, you know, because they spoke up or because they gave up a couple home runs last week or, you know, had a few bad games. So, um, you know, those are kind of the two big picture paths to better treatment for minor leaguers are, you know, eradication of the antitrust exemption and unionization. Uh, In the short run, I think speaking up and calling attention to what teams are doing and holding them accountable um, is, is the best thing we can do. And I think we've done it you know, pretty effectively so far in the first couple months of the season in terms of just drawing attention to specific things that are occurring um, and publicizing it on behalf of, of players who, who don't feel comfortable doing it themselves, understandably. Uh, and the teams have had to respond when we've done that, whether it's you know, the Cubs, the Orioles, the A's, the, the Cardinals, um, the Giants, who just in response to one of our tweets decided to give back pay to guys for extended spring training. I mean, that's a big, big deal for those guys. So, um, you know, in the short run, holding teams accountable, publicizing what they're doing, educating the public. Um, in the long run, you know, antitrust exemption and, and unionization are really going to be the, the long-term solutions. What do you think is going to change the situation so that uh, active players do feel more comfortable speaking out publicly on the record or being less afraid of retaliation like you know what you know what would affect the uh the kind of water they're swimming in that would uh allow for that to happen sure i mean i think there's a there's a couple different things i think you know one is getting a critical mass of guys behind it and we're starting to see that i mean i'll be honest in my conversations with players this year the current minor leaguer is you know much different headspace about these issues than minor leaguers were, you know, seven or eight years ago when I was playing. Uh, Back then, you know, I was one of very, very few people in my clubhouse talking about any of these issues. And now there are, there are a number of guys in every clubhouse talking about these issues. So I do think, you know, nobody wants to be on an island. Nobody wants to be the only guy to come out and speak. But once there's a critical mass of guys who are willing to do so, there's a little more cover. Um, so, you know, I think that's really important. I think if the teams, you know, we, we saw Mike Elias say in response to the controversy over the Bowie Bay Sox that happened, um, you know, that, that 
players should feel comfortable coming to the team and, and telling them what's going on. I mean, I can tell you, you know, as a, as a matter of fact, that teams, I mean, excuse me, that players do not feel comfortable. But if teams really mean that and really want to hear from their players about the, their treatment and really want to address it in a real way, um, then certainly teams can make that clearer to players and can put in place mechanisms to actually elicit their views and actually make changes when the minor leaguers come forward. I'm skeptical about whether that's ever going to really happen, but that certainly could. I think the last thing is, um, you know, support from the major league, uh, major league players, right? I think major league players uh, more, more than ever understand, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of the plight of minor leaguers and how unacceptable it is uh, at this point. And look, they have a lot of issues that they're fighting themselves right now and totally understand that. But, you know, hopefully on the other side of some of those fights, um, you know, if the MLBPA and major leaguers step in a little bit more, I think that would also go a long way towards making minor leaguers more comfortable speaking up. Uh, I want to talk about the housing situation for a little bit. Um, it always struck me as strange in the sense that, you know, I worked for a team for years and spent more than 100 days a year on the road. And when I did, um, literally everything was taken care of, obviously. You know, my hotel was taken care of. My If I had a you know, the car was taken care of and I got a, a pretty healthy per diem for food. Um, you know, if you are a player at an affiliate, in my mind, you're on the road and all of this stuff should be covered. Um, for a long time, you know, minor league affiliates leaned on this kind of host family system um, where, where, where locals would, would open up their homes to these minor leaguers. Uh, COVID complicated that. Um, but, you know, for, for a lot of these players, especially, and some of these players are in, are in, Areas where the housing is actually quite expensive. Um, you know, talking about like Myrtle Beach and places like that. Uh, I mean, I guess my question, I don't know if I've quite, my question is like, it, it, do teams just do this because they can? Yeah, I think that's the long and the short of it, um, is they do it because they can. They do it because nobody has called them on it before. Um, and, you know, look, you've you've been in, in a front office. You've seen how it works. Like, you know, efficiency is important. Cost savings is important. Allocating resources uh, efficiently is, is important. So I think, you know, the way it's been has kind of given, you know, has given teams an out to not spend on this. And they're all too happy to not spend on anything they don't have to spend on. I think it's really that simple. But from a logic standpoint, of course, what you're saying is right. These guys are on the road. They're not at home. They are not able to get, um, you know, sustainable, affordable housing on any salary, never mind the paltry salaries they're actually paid. Um, so I absolutely think that it's on the teams and should be on the teams to cover housing, you know, from the time players come to spring training until the time they go back home and, you know, for the off season. Um, and I think, to be honest with you, that that's where this is headed. I do think that um, the more we raise awareness about this and the more players kind of you know, come to us with their issues and the more that the fans and the public and the media come to see this issue for what it is, I do think teams will quickly realize from a player development standpoint and just from a, um, you know, a common sense standpoint, it makes sense to cover housing all the way through, um, you know, and, and for instance, like what the Astros are doing is great. Those guys, are, you know, we've talked to the guys in the Astros system. They're, they're really happy with the current setup this year and having, you know, these apartments uh, provided for them and paid for. I mean, I, I was speaking with some guys um, in another system where the team has has actually obtained the apartments 
but is just taking a little bit of money out of their paychecks to pay for it. I think, you know, that's a step in the right direction, but I think that in the future that team will, you know, will, will stop taking out of, out of the guy's paychecks um, and, and, and provide it. And, and that's kind of, I, I really believe that that's where the energy on this particular issue is headed for the simple reason that it's common sense and it's beneficial for everyone. I think, you know, there's so many housing stories I've heard this year. I mean, what we put out on our social media is a small fraction of the stuff we hear because guys are really scared of being identified and retaliated against and don't give us, you know, permission to put it out there. And I'm always respectful of that because I know how much has gone into every guy's career. I don't want to jeopardize anything. Uh, you know, we're here for them. So if they say, hey, this happened to me, but I don't want you to say it, I'm not going to say it. Um, but I can tell you that that the there are the issues are manifold. I mean, you have you have so many issues with guys getting moved from one level to another and having to deal with, okay, now who pays the rent at the old place? Who pays the rent at the new place? Now I only have, you know, a few days of the new place to find an apartment. Um, you know, the season's X, you know, number of months long. I can't find the lease that, that's that, uh, that length. I mean, and on and on and on. I mean, we've heard of guys sleeping in cars. We've heard of guys sleeping in, uh, in, in training rooms. You know, we've heard of, guys sleeping on couches, you know, the night before starting games in double A. I mean, it's just crazy the stuff that's going on um, across the minor leagues. And I think people who are in player development should understand that from a performance standpoint, you know, putting aside, you know, workers' rights and sort of just fairness and equity, it just makes no sense. I mean, it really makes no sense to have, have a, a guy starting a double A game and, and sleeping on a couch, like not a pullout couch, like a literal couch yeah. uh, the night before his start. I don't, I don't, who's, who's interest is that in? It doesn't make sense. This is one of the, this is one of the things that I get most curious about here. And I'm curious uh, for both of your thoughts on it. But to me, it seems like a bit of a no brainer that if you have professional athletes and you invest more in what they're eating, uh, you know, the quality of sleep they can get and everything that you will over time end up making a profit on that. Right. Because if you get one guy who otherwise wouldn't have made the majors and becomes an average major leaguer every year or two, that should theoretically pay for any investments you're making in the minor league system. Um, why is that? Is that logic wrong, do you think? Or is it uh, a matter of the kind of collusive behavior you've talked about? It seems to me teams are so eager to steal any kind of advantage, any kind of marginal edge. And they're not <laughs> doing so here, and it's you know it's a bit of a mystery as to why. Just in the just in terms of performance and getting value out of uh, you know the players you have in your system. Yeah, no, I mean, like I, I completely agree with that, and I think you know I'm, I'm no soothsayer, but I think that you could see that in the in the near future. I think you could see a sea change where teams and front offices start to look at their minor league system that way. I mean, if you think about it, you draft a guy, and now you got him for seven years. Why wouldn't you want to invest everything you could in maximizing the performance of that player, right? And of each of those players. Why, why would you want to farm that out to, you know, in, in the offseason to, to driveline or to pro performance or to, you know, to whatever uh, other sort of entity to go do that? And then why in season would you not feed them adequate meals, give them proper um, rest, proper nutrition, just expose them to everything that can maximize their talent on the field? It doesn't make any sense to me. And I think, you know, 
it's been something that you know teams have been unwilling to do to this point but i think once the first team does it right once the first team says you know what we're going to invest in our minor leaguers we're going to give them the best of everything and it's going to cost us some money but you know the returns on the investment are going to be great and we're going to incur those costs and we're going to see what happens once one team does that i believe the other 29 are going to follow suit because you know this current system only works if all 30 teams agree and collude and say we're just going to have this approach to player development which is let the cream rise and you know we're ultimately going to end up with a roster of you know 26 guys that can that can play at the major league level and the other guys will peter out and that's fine um, once one team breaks from that i think we could have an arms race in the minor leagues where it's a race to build the nicest apartment complexes with the best facilities. I mean, look at look at college look look at big time college football, right? I mean, this is what what teams will do to get the best out of their players, and I think you could see that in the minor leagues at some point. It just takes a team breaking ranks and seeing it as the next competitive advantage. I don't think it's out of the question. And we already we already have that in the Dominican Republic. There is a a race to build the nicest complex, um, you know, and, and they're used. They're, they're, the, the complexes themselves, you know, there's a couple that are real palaces, Cubs and Yankees come to mind. You know, the complexes themselves are used as selling points to sign with us. Um, you know, you talked about the, the Giants' response and, and in kind of um, paying, you know, back paying on, on some extended springtime. You talked about um, Baltimore's response. And there was a recent issue with um, the Cubs, uh, where the team was, the Myrtle Beach Clubs returned to Myrtle Beach and housing wasn't available. Um, and players were getting ready to be forced to sleep on the bus and things like that. Um, it was, and I'm using scare quotes here, fixed. Um, and then, you know, it, there was a, an article in The Athletic, which you um, responded to strongly. Um, and, it, you know, it did kind of feel like damage control. Do you, do you feel like, like that's what you're seeing more of or teams kind of responding in a damage control manner as opposed to, um, saying, oh, oh, this is a problem. We should do something about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a PR nightmare for them, right? Like, no, no team wants to be called out as cheap. No team wants to be called out as, you know, making their players sleep in their cars or on the clubhouse or serving them, you know, uh, these ridiculous meals. And so when we call the team out, I think they immediately go into damage control mode. I mean, I, you know, I was told of sort of the response uh, in that particular situation, in the Myrtle Beach situation, within, you know, seven or eight minutes of our tweet about the um, of, about the situation, what was described to me was, you know, nothing short of sort of mayhem on the bus, uh, on the team bus of people freaking out, being like, you know, oh, my God, how this has gotten out there. Um, you know, not, oh, man, this is scary. Like, why are guys going to sleep in the on the floor? Right. Mind you, not like, oh, man, we're so worried. But oh man, this is out there and now, you know, ownership and, and the top down, they're all going to be looking at us being like, what are you guys doing? How is this happening? Um, so I think, yeah, I do think it's largely damage control. I think unfortunately, you know, the team's first impulse is to silence players. I mean, in response to what happened with the Orioles and with response, you know, in response to what happened there, you know, the reports I heard from the players were that the, you know, that the response from the teams was strong and negative and why did you go to this organization with this information. Why would you do that? Why would you make us look bad? Um, you know, and I, that's problematic to me. Like if you hear that your if you hear that your employees are going to sleep in a car or are going to sleep 
you know, on training tables or on the floor in the clubhouse, if you care about them, your first con concern should be really like, are you guys really, you know, what's going on here? How have we not handled this? How can we help you out? Like, we care about you. That shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be. Why, why did you tell people about that? Like, that's right. really problematic. Um, so if you're a, uh, if, you know, what can people do to help? If you're just a fan, you know, if you're someone listening to this podcast, what, what, what can you do to, to try to help the situation? Yeah, I think, so I think there's a, a couple things. I think one thing is to, in any way you can, put pressure on the major league teams. Because at the end of the day, and I think this can be a little bit confusing in, um, you know, in light of sort of the structure of minor league baseball about who's ultimately responsible here. Uh, the commissioner's office really, you know, the commissioner serves at, uh, you know, at the, at the pleasure of the 30 owners, right? And the minor league teams are housing, the, uh, you know, the, the players who are, again, under contract with the major league owners. So in my view, uh, in our view, it's really the 30 owners of the major league teams that are responsible for treating minor leaguers better. And those owners are very responsive to the fans of the team, of the major league team. So I think, you know, whether it's on social media, uh, especially that can be helpful showing um, that you're paying attention to the issues and that you want to hold your team accountable to do things better. I think that can be really important. I think obviously going to our um, our website, which is advocatesforminorleaguers.com and donating um, to our organization so that we can, you know, bring on the right staff um, and have, you know, the resources at our disposal to continue to push change is a, is a great way to help. Um, and, you know, I think I would just pay attention to these issues as much as possible. I mean, we have, there are some, some legislators that that have reached out to us that are interested in helping. So, you know, you never know where that might lead. We might see some proposals on the legislative side about fixes and, and that's where the constituents can step in and say, Hey, th I think this is a problem. And I think, um, you know, there should be some change here and that would be another great way to help. So, you know, put, put pressure on, on the stakeholders, put pressure on the owners, you know, donate to our organization. Um, these are all ways that interested fans can help. And, and ultimately it's about just showing, showing people that you're paying attention because I do think that the exploitation of minor leaguers is something that has persisted for so long simply because it's not been known about um, by fans and by people outside of sort of the industry and who haven't been in those minor league clubhouses. I think the more that it's, uh, that it's made known to people, um, it's just, at a certain point, the cost savings aren't going to be worth it uh, on the PR side. And I think uh, teams, teams are going to say, you know what, let's do this the right way. You know, this was, this was a good way to save a buck for decades. It isn't a good way to save a buck anymore. Let's, tr let's treat these guys the right way and pay them a livable wage. Um, but that's going to take sustained public pressure from fans um, to make that happen. Have you had any interaction with the commissioner's office? Um, we have not had any, any interaction with the commissioner's office to this point. Um, you know, I... I, you know, I expect that may change at some point, but at this point we have not, uh, we have not. Well, Harry, I want to, I want to thank you for coming on and, and explain the organization and, and the important issues you guys are fighting for. Um, if you want to follow Harry on Twitter, he's at Harry underscore Marino. If you want to follow advocates for the minor leaguers on Twitter, they are at M I L B advocates. Um, again, the website is advocates for minor leaguers.com. Is there anything else I need to plug Harry? No, that's great. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Give me a sign of what
Welcome back to the podcast. Special guest time. Our special guest is the managing editor of D1 Baseball and absolutely the leading voice on college baseball. Uh, he's the guy to follow if you want to know what's going on there and joining us from his, I'm sure, luxurious accommodations in <laughs> Omaha. It's Kendall Rogers. Kendall, how are you, man? Uh, I'm doing all right. I'm on the, I was on the same wing as Virginia's baseball team, so it was kind of rowdy for a few days here in Omaha. Now I'm at Mississippi State's team hotel. Uh, the lobby is packed all the time, but uh, you know what? We'll all be out of here tomorrow, so we won't have to deal with packed lobbies anymore. <laughs> so to be clear to all the listeners, obviously we usually record on Thursday, and the show comes out on Friday. Uh, due to, to Kendall's life, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. So we are recording this prior to Game 3 uh, with, with Vanderbilt and Mississippi State, and so we don't know who won the College World Series yet. So, But that's not really what I want to talk to you about Um you know, obviously this happened after the last episode of the podcast, but on Friday I was getting ready to uh, sit down and turn on my television and watch Kumar Rocker pitch. And all of a sudden some tweets came out from you that the game's been delayed and something's going on. Um, and, and, and people were kind of scrambling to figure out what was going on. Uh, it kind of became clear quickly that there was some sort of COVID situation. And, and can you just kind of take it from there real quick? Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Uh, you know, uh, for, so Friday at about 1230, the game is supposed to start at 107. Friday at 1230, uh, I get a text from somebody who says, hey, you might, you know, where are you right now? And I'm like, oh, I'm at the hotel. I, you know, I'm about to hop in the shower and I'll be right over. Well, they're like, hey, you might want to get over here. So I, at that point, I knew something was going on. And I made a couple of phone calls and like, yeah, this game's this game's either about to be canceled or like they're about to play with literally like 13 people. So uh, obviously, uh, the NCAA pulled some of their guys off. You, you know, if you look back at, like, NC State's pregame photo, like, all, almost every guy they took out of the game was actually in the pregame photo in the dugout. And so uh, it's it's just kind of weird that, like, you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes later, all those guys are in the back of the locker room and they're all shipped off to a hotel to get tested for coronavirus. So, uh, you know, they go out there. And you, you, we all see the iconic picture of, like, Vanderbilt's team lined up down the first baseline. Do you see NC State lined up with their 13 players, whatever it was, down the left field line? And from there, you know, you know, NC State, you know, fought valiantly. They almost won. I mean, they had the, they had the winning run on base at one point, like I think it was the eighth inning. And so they almost won that game. I mean, who would I can only imagine the disaster had they won that game, but they almost won that game. And later that night, you know, Texas, Texas and Mississippi State get delayed until late in the evening. And at that point. It was about, I think it was about 12.45, I get another text from the same sources like, hey, it's a, you know you, you know what's about to hit the fan. And they said, hey, 110, it's going to hit the fan. So at about 110, a.m. Yeah, the NCAA puts a statement out that NC State has been declared a no contest for Saturday. They are out of the College World Series. So it, it was a crazy day. I mean, through all my reporting and talking to people on the NCA side, talking to people from NC State, NC State uh, tested their entire team at 7 o'clock on Friday night, and they did not get results back until 11.30, 11.45 that night, and they find out, you know, 20 minutes later, you know, behind closed doors that their season's over. So it, it was a disaster. I'll be honest with you. It was kind of surreal. Like you, you look at other sports and you, you think about, you know, teams and other sports. Like I think the most obvious one we all think of is uh, VCU uh, in, in men's basketball when they couldn't play the first round. But, I mean, you're talking about a team that is a final four team in college baseball 
being told, hey, you're going home because you've got too many kids testing positive. So, I mean, it, it was a surreal situation. And, and frankly, uh, it, it was avoidable. But I, I still, at the end of the day, I feel horrible for those kids. I can only imagine, you know, you think about it in Major League Baseball terms, uh, you know, let's, you, you had the Dodgers and somebody playing the LCS and, you know, Major League Baseball deems that the Dodgers have way too many people that have COVID. And so they can't play, the, you know, they can't play – where they have to forfeit a game of the World Series. It'd be kind of like that. I mean, not to that magnitude, but, you know, it'd be the same effect on a on a MLB rider. You you, you said something that, that kind of made me sit up there, which was that this was avoidable. Um, how was it avoidable? Because it feels like, you know, when, when we've had, you, you talked about VCU and college basketball, which I vaguely remember, um, but certainly we had this in baseball in 2020 where some teams missed, mm-hmm. I mean, just couldn't play for a while. Um, when you say this was avoidable, how was it avoidable? Well, I mean, I think the most obvious thing, and, and, and again, I'm not going to go down the pathway of arguing the the merits and politics of vaccines, but at the end of the day, we all kind of go into the postseason knowing exactly what the rules state. And the rules state that if your team is fully vaccinated, uh, they do not have to test. And so if you're NC State and you just totally wanted to avoid this possibility, you do exactly what Texas did. Texas is the only team in the College World Series this year that was fully vaccinated. Texas, other than when they got here, never went to test. Like no one in their traveling party tested for COVID. Because, because if, all, you were, if you were vaccinated, you didn't have to be tested, correct? You are correct. And so, I mean, that, that'd be the, the, the most obvious way to avoid it. Uh, you know, Elliot Avent, uh, after their game, you know, kind of got snarky with a reporter because a reporter asked, you know, hey, did you, you know, did you encourage your player to get vaccinated? And he kind of came back a little bit of a salty answer. And, and I think Elliot probably would answer that a different way. Now, you know, I was, I was talking to him the other day and he said, you know what, I'm vaccinated myself. And like, I, I want our kids to be vaccinated. But he was like, I just didn't feel like it was my role to tell them they have to do that. And again, we could we can all argue and have our own opinions on whether or not that's right or wrong. Well, let, let's know. have that argument. I, okay, I want to sure. have that argument with you because I I I think that's a correct argument. I think it's, you know, especially knowing that Texas had, I don't want to say an advantage, but Texas did the right mm-hmm. thing by having everyone, everyone vaccinated. So it was a zero issue for them by not encouraging your players to get vaccinated. The team themselves is complicit in creating this issue. There's no doubt. Yeah. I mean, it, here, here's the thing. Like I feel bad for them, but I feel bad for them too. Yeah. I want to be clear about that, but they brought this on themselves. No, you're right. I mean, and here's the other thing too. And I want to, and I do want to say this because so many people have brought this up, like NC State parents of players have brought this up. Well, you know, we're not, we're not even supposed to be testing vaccinated players. Well, here's the thing, guys. The, the NCA rule book, and, and again, the NCA has a myriad of issues. Don't don't get me wrong here, but the one thing they do have in their COVID rule book, and this is for every single championship, is that if they deem there to be an outbreak. They test absolutely everyone. It doesn't matter if you've been vaccinated 800 times. You will be tested. And so uh, they've come out in this whole thing. Well, uh, you know, they should have never tested our vaccinated players. But you reached outbreak status. I talked to Anthony Holman with NCA, and he brought up a great point. And I think it's a point, you know, I, I get it that a lot of people don't want to look at common sense these days in many instances. But, you know, he made the point that, you know, we went from, you know, one to two to four to eight cases of COVID on their team in a matter of four days. And right. he goes, you know, he goes, anybody that knows how COVID operates, guess what? It, it probably ain't stopping at eight. And so if you're the NCA, you cannot send them back out there to play because, you know, from the Vanderbilt players to 
you know, the, the 75 year olds who are working the, the uh, tunnels at the ballpark. I mean, it, let's say NC state plays that game and let's just say half their team has COVID and you know, it comes out a few days later. Well, what happens if a couple of the old people that are working at the ballpark get COVID and they're dead in two weeks, guess who they're going at? Guess who those families are going after? They're going after the NCA for allowing that to take place. So at the end of the day, NC state could have avoided this whole situation about getting fully vaccinated um, but you know, it, it is what it is. I will say this, Kevin, um, I had this discussion with the NCA yesterday. Uh, it was just, just me off the record talking to them. And the one thing I would like to see is I would like to see them, uh, implement a policy, of daily antibody testing. So one of the things that NC state has told me, not, not an official, but a parent has claimed to me after the fact that like four, 13 of the 16 kids are unvaccinated had had COVID in the last three or four months. Well, you know, since we're going off the data of, hey, um, you know, cases are probably gonna go from four to eight to 12. If we're making that assumption, we can also make that assumption based on, make the assumption based on the data at hand for now that you're probably not getting COVID again four months later. So what I would like to see them do is put a policy in place. And obviously we wanna encourage people to get vaccinated, but also let's put a policy in place that, you know what, if you have had COVID and you have recovered, uh, maybe you can take a daily antibody test in, in a intercollegiate uh, championship event. Because guess what? If you test positive for antibodies, you're not getting COVID. So um, I would like to see the NCA add that to their protocols. That would have that would have at least allowed NC State to play, I think. But as it stands, they had no shot. Now I, I'm I'm not a huge college sports fan. Um, sure. And, and one of the things that tends to turn me off about college sports, and it's a problem in the pros too, but is, is college sports fandom, um, which can be rabid and exceptionally irrational. Um, now, when this all happened, all of a sudden, in uh, let's be fair, a portion, just a section of the, of the NC State world, um, turned this into a weird conspiracy theory involving no Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt coach Tim Corbin, um, who... Is one of the more respected coaches in college baseball, obviously. Um, and all of a sudden, I, I mean, one person was to the point of trying to start a hashtag on Twitter calling uh, Coach Corbin a communist. Um, but but can you talk about like kind of where that came from and how it spread? Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable, actually. You know, I talked to uh, several sources uh, after all that happened. And, I mean, Tim Corbin actually had somebody leave voicemails like threatening him when he gets home. I mean, it was that bad. I know the NCA had some threats on the ballpark. They actually had to get to, you know, get the feds involved to, in one instance. And so, I mean, it was bad. And I can tell you this, it, it originated from a fan message board at NC State. I actually confirmed it with NCA and actually with NC State. NC State was really the one I wanted to confirm it with the most, just because NCA is going to say that he never asked them to be retested no matter what. But And that's the conspiracy it, is that Corbin asked for them to be retested. And therefore, like Corbin, wanted, Corbin, Corbin wanted them to be disqualified, basically. Yeah, correct. Yeah, Tim Corbin with with Kumar Rocker and Jack or with uh, Jack Leiter available was scared of NC State. So, um, yeah. So so he had threats, and you know that that conspiracy theory was going around. Obviously, it was totally debunked. But yeah, I mean, from that conspiracy theory to all of the stuff that was in my mentions for about three days. Thankfully, thank God, it has actually calmed down. But I mean, it, it is really unbelievable just how kind of toxic this debate continues to be like i don't i, I feel like the I, I kind of feel like this vaccine or no vaccine 
take is is pretty straightforward. I don't I don't really get why we're all still arguing about it at this point. And, and I get it's pretty one sided, but uh, I don't you know like I don't know. It's pretty straightforward for me. Yeah, no, for sure. Get your shots, everybody. Um, now, this has been a really good College World Series, and I, I, it's it's tough sure. because obviously this took away from it. Um, there was an incident in uh, after the first Vanderbilt Mississippi State game uh, with uh, again a small portion of Mississippi State fans uh, with highly improper, uh, racially hostile conduct towards mm-hmm. some of the family members of Vanderbilt, um, specifically the black family members of Vanderbilt. Um, and all of this is kind of taken away from what's been a, a, a very good college world series. Um, how do you end up trying to cover this stuff and still trying to say, this is great baseball game going on when there are kind of bigger things going on that are really ugly that need to be talked about? No, there's no doubt, man. It's, it's, it's tough. And, you know, and I kind of start with, um, with the COVID situation, uh, you know, that was a deal that on Sat or Saturday and Sunday, I, I mean, I probably spent four and a half hours on the phone with people uh, about that issue. Uh, you know, the other thing, you know, the other thing to, with the racial comments and things like that, I actually was not aware that actually had happened till the next day when I saw it. I woke up and I think John Cohen, the athletic director at Mississippi State, had put out just like a really generic statement. Yeah, and, it was not the best response. Well, well, it's just like you see that and you're kind of like, like, what the hell is he talking about? You know, and I know John well, but like it's kind of like, what it, what is he talking about here? And so as I kind of read up a little bit more on it, uh, it was pretty bad. I mean, thankfully, I feel like all parties involved and in, in, in really Mississippi State's the only one that needed to speak on this. But, you know, I thought all parties involved kind of got uh, were kind of quick to come out with pretty – pretty passionate statements. At least Vanderbilt came out with a passionate statement, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's no room for that kind of garbage in, in any, in any sport, in any setting whatsoever. So I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the, on the, on the block here real quick. Cause again, it's Wednesday afternoon. We're about to, sure. you know, in a few hours we're, we're, we're about to have game three of the college world series. When you hear this, the game will already be over, but we have Kumar rocker, uh, obvious first round pick. Uh, pitching for Vanderbilt. Will Bednar, I believe, is going from Mississippi State, who yep. is, is starting to generate some buzz as maybe a late first-round pick even. Um, who you got? I like Mississippi State, Kevin. I just think when you look at, at these two teams, you know, I think when you look at Kamar, I mean, going against Kamar in a big game is very risky. I mean, the guy just lives for the big moment. But I think when you look at Mississippi State with Will Bednar, and I agree with you, to me – uh, he, he's a first-round arm. I think we're all kind of getting a glimpse in this World Series with his fastball, his ability to spot it on both sides of the plate, the ability to 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 you know get swings and misses and elevate the fastball. His you know his off-speed stuff's been pretty good. Yeah, he's slider, obviously, the, the slider's legit. No, the slider's legit, and of course you know he's, he's his brother plays in the bigs. But you know when you look at look at him and you look at Kamar, I think the biggest differentiator for me when I look at these two teams uh, is the fact that Mississippi State has been able to rest their closer Landon Sims for three days. Uh, that is a huge deal this time of year, and so uh, they were lucky last night to kind of get off to you know get off to a good enough start, get a big enough lead to where they didn't have to use Landon uh, in game two. And so I think when you can kind of go Bednar and then turn things over to Landon Sims. I just think that's put you in a really good position. And, you know, speaking of the draft, uh, you know, keep an eye on Tanner Allen. He just continues to get big hits for Mississippi State, and I think that continues uh, in the series finale against Vandy. Well, Kendall, I know you got a huge game to cover. I want to thank you for, for coming on to, to discuss the, the COVID situation with NC State. Um, 
if you want to follow Kendall on Twitter, he is at Kendall Rogers. And if you want to read his stuff, go to D1 Baseball. I mean, this guy, it's, it's you know, obviously college baseball has a, a smaller footprint than Major League Baseball. But uh, this guy is the is the Ken Rosenthal, Jeff Passan, all these things <laughs> rolled up into one of college baseball. I don't know if, pa- I don't know if Passan wants you comparing the two of us. Uh, you, you, you also, uh, you know, don't wear sandals like a real person. Um, That's very true. And, uh, but he's all over it. Like he he's, keeps track of all the guys in the transfer portal, um, including like the big story with basically all of Arizona in the transfer portal. Uh, whenever coach, coaching openings take place, he's all over those, knows who's being talked to, knows who's getting interviewed. Um, no one's on top of this game more than, than Kendall and, and the team at D1 Baseball, uh, which includes the, the, the lovely Aaron Fit. Um, so highly recommend go to D1 Baseball and and, uh, and sign up there. They, they the, the content they put out is, is really fantastic. And Kendall, thanks again and, and have a good time tonight. You got it, Kevin. Great talking to you, buddy. Appreciate it. Back to the podcast. Thanks to Harry. Thanks to Kendall for the double-barreled special guest action. Uh, start with our musical guest. You've been listening to Lung. 
powerful, sinister indie rock from Cincinnati, Ohio. Not exactly where you think you're going to get your powerful, sinister indie rock from. I guess Afghan Wiz is from Cincinnati. That counts. Um, Lung is a cello and drum two-piece rock band from Ohio. Uh, Their new album, Come Clean Right Now, is out on August 20th. They'll be going on a national tour, opening for Max Sabbath. Fantastic band name. Uh, For six weeks from september 1st to the middle of october um they have played hundreds of shows they've toured europe it's a fascinating band um it's a cello at times hooked up to an amp and a, a pedal of some sort to provide crunch um the person who plays cello is also a classically trained opera singer uh and then there's a banging drummer and they do very very good music thanks to daisy kaplan from lung getting in touch sending us music and letting us play them uh, you can check them out at lungtheband.com, and I believe that's also their Twitter address, but this is very good stuff that I like a lot, so thanks to Lung. It's time for emails. Are you ready for emails? I am so ready. <laughs> so, if you have an email, send us emails. We like reading your emails. Chinmusic at fangraphs.com. If you've ever been reticent about sending an email, now's the time, because the emails were short this week, but I was able to use some from previous weeks. Uh, but we used a couple from this week. But our first email comes from Dylan. And Dylan says, let's say Eddie Goodell is in the Orioles system today. The Browns become the Orioles, and then he could be a full-time DH. What do you put on him if eligible to play? What type of line do you think he'd put up in terms of triple slash average on base slugging? Um, I think most people know this, but Eddie Goodell was a little person who was put uh, was allowed to hit in a big league game. It was it was a publicity stunt. Um, he walked on four pitches. Um, I think... I think him walking on four pitches makes people think he would walk a lot. And I think that was just, I think that was bad strategy on behalf of the opponent. I don't think the opponent used good analytics in approaching Eddie Goodell. I disagree. So first off, I'm hearing a lot of Bill Beck erasure here. Bill Beck, <laughs> um, who wrote the greatest baseball book ever, Beck is in Wreck, and was, as many know, the long-term owner of the Chicago White Sox, uh, put Goodell in. Some cynics have said this was a publicity stunt, but I think he was way ahead of uh, the curve <laughs> on analytics. I believe Geidel would have a 0, 0, 0, slash 1.000 slash 000 line. I have no idea what that would translate to in like war over a full 162 game season. But I don't I believe. I believe he would uh, walk every time up and you would then be presented with the problem of probably needing to put a pinch runner in for him every time he reached base in a critical situation because I, I think he would make it to first, but I believe he would be easily thrown out at second due to sub-20 grade uh, speed I think due, to his, hit, due to his, his small height. I think he would hit zero... Maybe like 100, zero. Because I think you know he can't hit. You literally know he can't hit. He's not even going to run into one. I think you could literally just throw. I think if you asked a pitcher to throw 80 mile an hour strikes, they could, even to a man with, with Eddie Goodell's strike zone. And I just think that's the thing. Like, Do you, to, I guess, to, to that's, pitch, a, to pitch I guess him, that's a disagreement here, right? To pitch, to, pitch him seri- to pitch him seriously is the mistake here. It's just, it's Eddie Goodell. Like, you, it's a little person, just, you know, just. Throw three right I down think the that middle. Strike no. zone, I think that strike zone is smaller than you're giving him 
credit Maybe. for, especially if you can imagine him being coached into a Ricky Henderson style crouch. Like, <laughs> however small the strike zone is here, we're 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 coaching him to minimize it, like to really the size of like a credit card and. I believe that's a harder target to hit than you than you maybe crediting pitchers. And I, I you also would need the second roster spot because, like you said, the second he's on base, you'd want to pinch run for him probably. I could, yeah, I think because he's, be, I, yeah, I don't think you want to put him in the lineup every day, even as a DH, even if he has a, a one thousand on base percentage. But if you uh, grant my prior that uh, having him crouch down super low. And giving him a strike zone, you need to be like Pete Greg Maddox to hit, will allow him to have, even if not a 1,000 on base average, one that's very high. I think it's very tactically useful. We found the next market inefficiency. <laughs> Our next email comes from Mark. Mark says, my question, how did the Reds set up with Kyle Bodie? Uh, were the Astros pursuing Kyle Bodie or others signing Kyle Bodie and Derek Johnson this winter are two highlights for us longtime fans, and we have to make lemonade from lemons all too often. I've heard you mention Driveline a bit on the, this podcast. Can you speak a bit more on how Major League front offices and coaching staffs view it? For those who don't know, Kyle Bodie uh, is the founder of Driveline um, and is now, I think his actual position is uh, pitching coordinator for the Reds. Um, they've developed their own training system to make guys throw harder and spin balls more um and we've talked about this you can make get guys to spin balls more naturally just not nearly as much as you can by sticking your hand into uh maple syrup um there were plenty of teams after kyle um some saw him as too much of an iconoclast um the Reds did not, and I think he has a lot of value. Major League Team C's driveline is very different. I can only speak of my experience with the Astros. If a pitcher wanted to go to driveline, it was fine. The way they taught things and what they did kind of aligned with maybe 85% of what the Astros did, and you could try to coach the other 15% out. It wasn't a big deal. But there are teams who don't like their players going to driveline because it does go against the way they train their players. Um, well, that's how it should be, right? Yeah. Is if you have uh, independent outside consultants and they're doing some useful stuff uh have your players work with them and then if they're teaching them stuff you think is nonsense or just not going to work with the general system you want you can tell them do all this good stuff they showed you don't do this and more generally um if you have these outside iconoclasts it's really cool to see a team bringing them in yeah uh, you know if if it's all Rigmarole, and it's not going to help any pitchers. They'll be exposed pretty quickly, and if more likely they're, you know, doing something. I, I think we've already. I think we. Yeah, we've already seen people. a positive impact with Kyle Great. and the Reds. I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, seems seems cool to me. Yeah, more outsiders are good. Um, my last email comes from Mike, and and I definitely wanted your thoughts on this. Um, as someone who's been in sports journalism in the past. Um, or sports adjacent at times. Um, so we had a long discussion a couple episodes ago with Mark Kerrig about kind of sports journalism in the future. Uh, Mike writes, I enjoyed your podcast with Mark Kerrig. He was great. I'd like to hear him again. I was a sports journalism major, so I had a quick opinion on your discussion. Another why, reason why the industry is mostly filled by people with privileged backgrounds is because sports journalism jobs generally don't pay well, involve a lot of benefit-less freelancing, don't offer much job security. 
it's a hard job, limited opportunities, and a changing, shrinking injury, especially for people starting out. So sports journalists are typically people who have safety nets in case things get rough. If you come from a poor or working class background, I'm not sure why you would get into sports journalism unless you really, really love it. Otherwise, go to a different field and actually make some money. I guess my point is the conditions of sports journalism industry itself shape the demographics of the people who work in it. I know this is kind of obvious, but I think the diversity issues are deeper than just recruiting a wider variety of voices. Um, did you go to journalism school? You didn't, did you? No, I actually didn't even uh, finish out my bachelor's. Yeah, so. you know, I, neither of us have a college degree. Wow. Um, <laughs> so I, I do think more journalists are coming from non-journalism backgrounds, and I think that's a mm-hmm. really, really good thing thing i do agree with the point here that it's not a great industry if you're into money and job security yeah i think that's everything in that email is a hundred percent true um i think there's a really big filtering effect where you know to even get into uh the apprentice level Mm-hmm. of the sports journalism industry involves taking on a level of risk that is necessarily in a lot of cases going to uh, involve having a safety net. Um, to take a step back, one of the pieces of advice I give when I talk to students a lot of the time is like, if you, if you really want to get into sports journalism, I advise either um, studying math and business in a lot of ways, mm. um, just having like a solid background in statistics or analysis is is really going to set you apart in a lot of ways and, and allow you to approach, you know, approach stories uh, in a way that will give you background of what decision makers are doing um, in a way that. You won't be able to understand if you if you don't have that background, or cops and courts reporting, just like basic right um, overnight stuff like checking the police blotter, um, talking to lawyers, talking to you know prosecutors and defense attorneys and advocates in those cases, and just generally getting an understanding of nuts and bolts reporting. If you're doing either of those things. They can completely align with just figuring out how to talk to people, which is a lot of a lot of journalism. Um, but they'll give you kind of a specific area and approach you're coming from. Mm-hmm. That said, it's a lot you know it's a lot easier to do that if you know that I really want to get into this, but um, if it doesn't quite work out, I'm still going to be fine. And the journalism industry like needs to do a lot better at that at places I've worked at vice where I work now it's like a big subject of not only conversation but like concerted action like where are we um, you know where are we finding potential hires where are we finding potential interns how are we supporting people who do not come from a background where if this doesn't work out for them, it's going to be a catastrophe. Um, it's like everything there is completely right. And there's no overarching, there's no overarching structural answer to it. 
the you know the answer to it is in individual editors um, being presented with you know competing resumes, make a character of it. You've got you know uh, Jamie Vandersloot, who's right. <laughs> you know whose family has a building at Harvard named after them, and is is really curious about getting into the sports journalism space. And you've got uh, Jamie Vander not so slute, uh, you know, maybe in community college and has, you know, taken these classes and has done this work and is really looking uh, to make the next step in their career. And if you have those two people to pick from, uh, you know, when you're hiring an intern or you're hiring an entry level reporter, um, you know, you're in a, it's not about like privileging, uh, you know, one person over the other. It's saying, it, you know, this person has obviously been put in a position where they can walk in and they will be able to hit these marks because they've been taught how to do so. Mm-hmm. Like they, like that's just been what their life has been about. Um, you know, they may end up being able to do a better job, but are you really sure um, that they're the person you want to hire? Are you really sure that you're um, giving the non-Vandersloot uh, a chance <laughs> and uh, allowing that, you know, if they haven't been uh, kind of run through how to hit various marks throughout their young life, that, you know, they, they might well be better equipped to do the job. They might need a little, you know, more coaching in some cases, or they might not. But are you, you know, what are you looking for? It's almost like to, you know, to take a step back, like, you know, you got your, you've got your obvious, you know, ultra alpha prospects who, yeah. you know, have been great throughout all their life and, you know, they're now at Vanderbilt and they have a 107 mile an hour fastball that they can put anywhere they want to put it in the strike zone. And, you know, they can move and bend it any which way. And that's the person you want. If <laughs> that's the person who's up for a job you're hiring for, um, great. Uh, if you're looking at candidates who have various strengths and weaknesses, um, and and all the rest, you know, are you are you looking at people who are going to be able to report well or make your life easy? Yeah. I guess would be the most polite way to <laughs> the most polite way to put it. And it comes, you know, there are individual decisions that are constantly, constantly made all throughout, right. you know, the industry, not just in sports journalism, but all over journalism. It's, it's, um, you know, this person is, is, is lacking this tool or has come up through this coaching environment that hasn't prepared them to do this and that. Um, you know, are you willing to, uh, take a, a very mild, moderate, risk uh with someone who has has potential or are you not willing to do so i think in fairness it seems like 
you know, certainly since I got into journalism, people are, you know, who are in, who are in hiring positions or positions to, you know, bring people on are way more willing to say, hey, this person doesn't come from, you know, the perfect and ideal background with all their tools uh, in exactly the right place. Um, and so that's good. They might be bringing a different perspective. They are someone, you know, we can work with and, you know, teach them things they might not know, uh, but might learn from being taught and just going that way. It's not the field to get into if you are seeking perfect and total career stability. Um, (laughs) It's just, it really, it really isn't. And I would always advise anyone who really wants to make a career out of it to um, study, you know, have a competency in a different field, mm-hmm. like statistics, like law, like nuts and bolts. Because um, we, we do see that, to bring, to bring it but, back to, to sports real quick, we do mm-hmm. see this in sports where, um, because of what we talked about earlier, as well as other things, things like, um, you know, an upcoming labor dispute, like I feel people who are reporting on sports are being asked to cover things that are definitely not um, in their core competency. So you're saying, yeah, and you're that's saying where, these people, it's, you know, we need to expand what those core competencies are. Yeah. I think, you know, if you like, if you know sports and you have the fundamental ability to just like talk with people and, uh, you know, be a little bit of an information broker, which are, you know, the core skills, you need anywhere in journalism if you come into it just really knowing baseball and having those skills and you also have uh, a base in another area that's great that's going to mm-hmm. set you apart and yeah it's a really good thing to, to I, I, you know to come in with is just saying like I am not um, you know I am not someone who's trying to be uh, Jeff Passan and at the age of 21 uh, be trying to break all the all the trade rumors or anything but I do know a lot about labor law mm-hmm. and I can apply that to my baseball coverage like that is the sort of thing that would set you apart and where I see a lot of successful people coming from is just having a little bit more of a, a background in an area like that or having um, developed one in the course of their early career right right um, that's it for the emails. Send us emails. Chinmusic at fangraphs.com. I kind of want to, it's time to catch up with Tim. I kind of want to lead this into, into your world and, and what you just talked about in some ways. Um, you did a lot of sports stuff. You're currently the features editor for Motherboard, um, at Vice, which is, which is tech centric. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that happen and do you miss sports? So, um, <laughs> it ha- it happened because I joined Vice a couple of years ago uh, as a kind of general features editor. And over the course of the last couple of years, as we've made various changes, it's made various kinds of sense for my team to join up with the motherboard team, um, which is big into tech and science, which are, st- you know, areas we were covering intensely uh, and, and, and join our forces. So it's really, you know, 
just been fun and amazing to take all the things I have learned throughout my career, including very much in sports journalism, uh, about tech and science and apply them to the big wide world. I don't really miss sports journalism in the sense that I think it would be really fun to cover sports every day, but the reason I got out of sports journalism um, in, in the first place was because it felt like every story I wanted to do in that area was kind of bursting and straining at the seams. And um, so I wanted to do a lot of stuff that was in the general vein of what I was covering there, but was more uh, directly related to the outside world, outside sports. It's kind of a, a long rambly way of saying, I, I think it's a total, totally false binary. Like mm-hmm. I think sports and culture and politics and everything else, like they all just bleed into each other. Uh, you're talking about the same things, any which way you're doing it. You're talking about like power dynamics and you know, what reality is and, what the truth is and who has power and who's um, lying and who's not. And, um, you know, like it all, it all comes down to that stuff. So you can, you're, you're applying the same tools and following the same interests, uh, whether you're covering sports or not. And it's in some ways more fun to be doing it outside sports just because you have a, wider array of things you can cover but um sure like i miss the um kind of certainty of things in sports i think right might be one way to put it like uh it's 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 i don't want to say it's limited because it's not but it's defined right it's like you can cover power and truth and who's saying what in um, a kind of circumscribed area like baseball generally or major league baseball a little more specifically or a team a little more specifically um you know that's fun too it's all good i i think whatever you're covering it's uh a good thing to cover as long as you're covering it honestly and skeptically and curiously you know there are there are wonderful journalists who have just covered like one street corner for 40 years and there are wonderful journalists who have been able to trot all over the world right uh for 40 years and and at the end of things both of them will probably have come up with a lot of cool stories if they're doing their job diligently and honestly and uh, how do you how do you choose your stories there because I, I, I mean there's obviously some very serious stories here and and always like good explain explainers if you will like you know a good a lot of good stuff on on Robin Hood, and a lot of good stuff on like the recent uh, Game Stonk stuff that that helped you know people understand what the hell that is. And then yeah, obviously it's the internet. You got to have some fun, and you've you know an Air Force video explaining what a penis is, um, like <laughs> which is just fun to say. It's a great headline. Air Force video explains what a penis is. Um, how much? I, I guess my question, and this comes to a lot, like how much. How do you decide what you want to do? Is it just this looks good? Um, how much, how often does commercial, because it, you're, it's a, vice is a money making business like Fangraphs is everything. And like, you know, how, 
what kind of traffic is this going to generate that kind of thing like like what's the decision making process for what is something to pursue and what is not um so you know my job is as an editor i have i have writers who report to me and um i'm lucky enough to be in the position where we mainly focus on features and investigations like people who directly report to me and me so um we basically pursue it in terms of what we're really interested in like it's kind of like a little bit of of a gut feel thing um just like what do you really you know what do you really want to go after that seems worth uh spending time on whether that's spending a lot of time on an individual story or spending a lot of time over a period of months on a series of stories that are digging into you know one area of interest um you know we don't we're not too guided by uh commercial considerations in the sense that if there is something that is exposing news and it's just flat interesting and it's not clicking with readers we're not going to abandon it Mm -hmm. for that reason um we might think about how to how to how to repackage it or whatever like if something's not landing with the public or people aren't finding it interesting that's something to take into serious account and we do but ultimately you know i just work with curious people and i feel like largely my job is to uh empower them to be curious and to go after whatever they're interested in and figure out ways to uh explain to the public (laughs) why uh what they happen to be interested in is stuff everyone should be interested in like anything anything any smart curious person who has time to dig into things uh finds interesting there should be an audience for um and i think that's the way a lot of you know a lot of places work and unfortunately it's not the way a lot of places work. <laughs> right. <laughs> so are there any recent stories you guys have done that you're especially ah proud's a weird word, but like proud of that, that really like man, this turned out this is this is amazing. This is great. Obviously you think everything's good if you put it up, but like yeah. this is this is phenomenal. Yeah, I don't want to leave anything out. Um but sure. a couple of uh a couple of things that I'm really happy about. I wouldn't even say individual stories, but campaigns of coverage. Mm-hmm. My colleague Anna Merlin and I have, for several months, been working on uh, a series of stories about the anti-trafficking organization Operation Underground Railroad, which purports to travel abroad and free child sex slaves. Um, and as we've dug more and more into what they actually do we found that there's a pretty big distance between uh what they say they do and what they actually do and those are stories that are you know have been really satisfying because they're exposing a gap between uh what people say is happening and what is actually happening which i think is like the baseline uh you know good thing you can do in any in any sort of journalism and another uh series of stories that i've been really happy to be able to work on is my colleague shayla loves coverage of um 
intellectual property and patent claims mm. in the area of psychedelics, like <laughs> to, to make a really big and complicated story short. Oh, people are, like designer drugs. Well, it's psychedelics specifically. There are a lot of big, uh, there are a lot of big companies, uh, that are laying down patents on, um, specific techniques for using psychedelic drugs to, uh, do therapy. So the, like a very silly, uh, example, but, but a serious one of this that came up today is she did a, she did a story about how a company called Palo Alto Investors has been able to patent the use of LSD uh, to treat food allergies, even though there's no evidence you can do so and there's no method to do so. It's it's a weird case of a little bit of uh, a gold rush in the in the in the way of intellectual property, where companies are laying claims, trying to find a legal use to profit from it. Yeah, trying to figure out how they're, you know, how they're going to be able to make money in the future off this stuff that doesn't even exist. I did read something about, I think it was a study, like that they actually found some success in using psychedelics to treat addictions. And Mm. I know that that sounds, you know, that sounds like um, oxymoronic because you're using drugs to treat drug addiction. But like that. No, no, no. It's 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 it's. A fascinating yeah, area. Yeah, people and have found it, like with alcoholism yeah. or drug addiction using psychedelics to help treat that addiction, and with with you know you know double blind, you know third party confirmed studies saying this actually does work, and it's open. yeah, it's 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 clearly a really um, serious area of inquiry, and so that's where you see people rushing in. They're like, how are we going to make money off this? And of right. course, the people doing that tend to be backed by uh, big companies. And so when you get into the nuts and bolts, both of like, how do we know um, that these drugs can be used to treat this? And also who's going to have control or power over this? Who's going to make money off it? Um, You know, Shale has just been covering that wonderfully. And so that's another kind of campaign of coverage I've been really proud of. And I know that, uh, you know, it's it's a weird thing to say, but um, I know one reason I feel competent to uh, work on that sort of science journalism is just, you know, largely based on things I learned covering baseball. Mm. You know, just you know, just about like uh, statistical techniques and uh, how to a say uh, cause and effect and, and different things like that. That's part of what I meant earlier in talking about, you know, not setting up a binary between sports and the outside world. They, right. You know, they totally move back and forth and things you learn in one area are, are totally transferable to the other. And any, anything coming that we should be excited about? Um, I don't know. I think we're going to have a lot of good coverage coming. You should definitely go read Motherboard and Vice generally. We but, always yeah. have good stuff on, on both websites. Yes, and also under under Motherboard is the Waypoint people who do phenomenal video game coverage. Amazing video game coverage. They're yeah, so good. So. If you like video games, and I do like video games, and you like to... It's hard to find coverage that is done from kind of an adult, almost intellectual bent, and that's what they do, and it's really 
and they have really good people there as well. Highly recommend the Waypoint folks. Could not more highly recommend them and uh, sign on to that. Um, it's time for a moment of culture, Tim. Mm. You want to go first? Am I supposed going? to go first? Or well, it do doesn't you matter. Want to? You know what? I tend to go first, so I want you to go first. Um, so I thought long and hard about this, and you're probably going to think this is a pretty basic thing. But no, no, I we have, to... we've had Love Island. Don't you're not going to you're not going to be more basic than that. I want to suggest to everybody my favorite record of all time, uh, which is the Mekons Fear and Whiskey. The the Mekons are a British punk band that were first wave punk and survived to the present day. I have seen them a million times in Chicago. I've gone to the United Kingdom to see them in Leeds. Wait, have you gone specifically to the UK yes. just to see the Mekons? I have I have gone to Phenomenal. the UK specifically to see the Mekons and followed them around to like six concerts. I mean, I saw them in Wales and the Midlands and the Netherlands on one tour, for instance. So I'm a little bit of a fanboy. I like them more than the next guy does. But I think most people with any... Uh, taste for or appreciation of rock or country generally could dig fear and whiskey it's just like by me the greatest record ever it's a concept (laughs) record about a minor strike and you know the apocalypse and it's just something really cool i think everybody would enjoy and uh john langford uh still based out of chicago right still based out of chicago is doing awesome stuff um, I, you know, I think he and Sally Timms are doing stuff at the hideout this summer. So if you're in Chicago and you want to check out what's going on at the hideout, um, you can probably see Nikon's, uh, elements doing stuff live at your local bars. You know, go, go check them out. That is, that is my, uh, my, my culture recommendation. Fear and Whiskey. Fear and Whiskey. The Mekons, 1985. Do you, do you remember a band called Too Much Joy in the 90s? I do not. They were like a snotty kind of uh, power pop slash punk band. They were a lot of fun, but they had a great song called If I Was a Mekon that uh, I will send you away. <laughs> um, I'm also going to go light. Um, I think, you know, there are times where, like, you can't, we've talked about this, like, you know, the world sucks right now and times you don't, as much as you want to watch like a very serious thing, uh, sometimes you just need light entertainment. Um, and like we were, and I think everyone gets this situation as well. We were like out of shows. You know what I mean? Like we're out of mm-hmm. shows. We, so we finished that. We finished We're out of shows. We got to find something. And we started. Oh, that's where I latched on to Loki. I'm way more into Loki than I would have been if I was <laughs> So we were, at, we were out of shows. <laughs> and we were doing the thing where you spend more time um, scrolling through Netflix than actually picking something to play. And we came across a television series called Dark Summer. Um, and it's a zombie show. There are 8,000 zombie shows. <laughs> I like zombie entertainment, but I am particularly not a fan of The Walking Dead. But I still like zombie entertainment. Um, and so we started this on, on a just a, you know, just, well, let's just watch this right now. This is, you know, because you get to that point where, you know what, it's, it's 1030. We just have to figure out what we're going to do before we go to bed. This will kill. I've been there. This will kill forty minutes of that, and so we started Dark Summer, and it's we're now on season two, and it's really well done. I believe it's a Canadian production. Um, there's no, I don't, I've never recognized any of these actors in anything else. 
Um, it is very well made. But I think the thing I like about this show is there is a zombie apocalypse happening. They're kind of unique zombies where it's like you don't have to get bitten. Like if you die, you're going to turn, period, right? It's not like getting bit and getting the virus. If I shoot you and you and you die, you're becoming one of these zombies, right? That's the first part. But the thing that makes this show really effective is, I think, I think, I think we're like 10, 12 episodes in, is that the zombies themselves are adjacent. Like, it's not about fighting zombies. It is very much about the fact that this apocalypse has happened and we've had, obviously, because of it, a global systemic breakdown. Like, there is no more... There is no more system. There's no more government. There's no more police. There's no more. And it's more about man's inhumanity towards man in this situation. Yeah, I feel like all real, like, and I love just like baseline zombie stuff, like Romero films and everything. Sure. But the really good stuff I like, like the Walking Dead comics before they totally went off the rails because uh, the guy who wrote them was too busy becoming a big Hollywood impresario and writing for a terrible TV show are really about like, yeah, the, the zombies are like a, a prompt. They're, they're just there to right. allow us to examine how we respond to, to huge metaphors. Right. You spend far more, far more time in the show watching and listening to alive people than worrying about fighting zombies, you know? And it's, it's more about like how people interact in a world with no systems. Um, yeah, and what, are we, what are we going to do if there's some global apocalypse that reveals we're all on our own and it's, people in charge aren't doing anything on our behalf? Like, how would we deal with that? I That's mean, what I want out of my Yeah, I mean, on the second half, we're already there. Um, it's just people haven't realized it yet. Um, but yeah, it, it's more about that. And like, it, it, you get exactly what you'd expect. You get inhuman behavior. You get... Um, like factions and, and localized gangs and all that kind of, it's exactly what you think would happen. Um, and, but it's, it's very, very well done. It's, 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 it's dark. It's tough. It can be brutal at times, but I think it's, I, I appreciate what they're doing. And I, and I think, you know, there's a million ways to do this wrong and they, they haven't done it yet. So dark summer, it's on Netflix. Yeah. It sounds good as hell. And if you are, uh, like a, the kind of person with a nice TV and sound system, that was my midlife crisis. You know, thank God that's all it was, was getting into audiovisual <laughs> stuff. Um, it's like in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmosan and, and all that stuff helps the experience as well. I feel like so, I'm like a year off from that is rearranging my TV. Yeah. Um, if you want advice, let me so know. So that I can get a bunch of gear behind mm-hmm. the TV um, and then tell my kids, like, you have to sit right in the spot. So you're going to be surrounded <laughs> with 720 degrees of sound. And I'll be like, all right, man. But it's still... You know, can I, can I like, play a video game? <laughs> yeah. If I if I sit right in the spot and get the seven hundred and twenty degrees of sound, can I play Let's Dance? <laughs> yes, it'll sound and look amazing. Yeah, it'll be, it'll <laughs> it's be incredible. All, it's all that matters. Well, I think we're done here, uh, Tim. I can't thank you enough for filling into the co-host chair for a week. Um, uh, I hope I haven't ruined the show for you and Melissa. You've not ruined anything. Come on. Um, but I, thanks for the discussion. It was obviously not always a, uh, a happy, fun time show. Those are going to happen sometimes because the world can be awful at times. Um, but just us emails to music at fangraphs.com. Tim, thanks again. Thanks to Kendall Rogers. Thanks to Harry Marino. And we will talk to you next week.